With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Recorded live. Well, yeah, how else would you record it? Dad, of course it's recorded live. Duke. There he is. I got to hear the intro. Do you get to hear the intro when you log in? Does it say talk to your love? No. I, I think it just kind of... I think whoever jumps on it first must get to hear it then because I get to hear it. And usually it's me first and it's like talk to you live. And then I go, well, yeah, as opposed to what? Talk to you dead? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded yeah. live, yeah. Well, what are you going to record from the graveyard? Of course, it's recorded live, duh. So, <laughs> fucking retarded. Oh, I'm just having so much fun with the no fans left controversy going on right now. This is just a great time. Just really enjoying it. Telling everybody they should go support their local college team and who gives a fuck about the NFL anyway. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Those guys. Go, you know, do a real sport. Come squatch it. Yeah, no shit. Bunch of fucking overpriced crybabies. Oh, college is over. Now we can't watch football anymore. Wait, let's make it a national sport so we can continue to be fucking babies the rest of our lives. Wait, wait, I'm going to suck my thumb. Shut the fuck up. Piss ants. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah, I have no attitude whatsoever, although I quit watching football 10 years ago and it became abundantly clear to me that it was just as fucking rigged as pro wrestling is. So at that point, it's like, well, if you want, if you like football and you want to support a team, go support your fucking local college team, and don't give any money to these fucking crybabies, who is, uh, says in their manual that they're supposed to be standing up for the uh, the fucking national anthem. It says right in the NFL manual, and they also got 1.8 uh, billion on an average per year in subsidies from the government to make new stadiums and shit. So technically, they're working for the government, and fuck them. Yeah, and it's out of respect for military personnel who go exactly, and, regardless of your beliefs, they still go and fight wars and die. So yeah, on our they, behalf. <laughs> so these overpriced fucking crybabies can sit there and whine and piss on the sideline like the fucking worthless little brats that they are. Yeah, I completely agree. I have no zero tolerance. That's why I guess I don't even pay any attention to it. So. Yeah. Well, in as much as I hate the NFL and I think they're just as rigged as wrestling without the, having the integrity to admit it, um, I go after them a lot fucking more whenever I have the opportunity, so I'm taking advantage of it. Every fucking negative NFL thing I can find, I'm reposting it. 
fuck them, go out of business, you pieces of shit. You know, the fact is, out of every fucking NFL team, there's only one that isn't owned by a billionaire, and that's the, the Green Bay Packers. So, of course, they're going to be fucking spewing the same globalist bullshit propaganda that their fucking owners like. Yeah, yeah. So you had a swamp ritual there. Yeah, well, the drummer lives here, but they're doing their North American tour right now. They started out in Portland, then they went over to uh, Spokane, and then uh, they were back here for one night, then they went up to Great Falls and Kalispell, and tomorrow they're in, or tonight they're in Bozeman. But Missoula is directly on the path between Kalispell and Bozeman, so they're like back here for part of the day before they take off and go to the next show. Wow, awesome. Well, that, I love that, that, that jam that you play. Uh, the Swamp Ritual song. That's awesome. Well, those guys are fucking amazing. Their new album's really good. They got really good recording quality on the new one, and uh last couple songs on it are pretty spectacular. I don't know if you ever played D&D or anything like that, but I used to be a gaming geek when I was a kid, and one of my friends that I used to play with had a character named Malacaster, who uh, his character ended up turning evil and becoming undead and became this lich lord, and then became a non-player character. Well, I still got him in my campaign, and I was telling these guys about some of the old characters from the campaign and stuff, and they thought that character was just fascinating. So they wrote a fucking song about him. So they put ah. up the song on the new album. Actually, they took lyrics I had written like five years ago and slightly changed them and used those for it. So I actually get credit for writing lyrics on both their first their first and second album. <laughs> the only person besides that wrote lyrics on them, huh? How bizarre is that? And then, so here's the even funnier thing. The guy that actually created and played the Malacaster character originally, his birthday was yesterday. So I sent him a message and I went, hey, you famous guy, have you heard that song they did about your D&D character yet? And the guy I had no idea. And I like, sent him a file of it. Oh, here's some video of Swamp Ritual playing live. Oh, and here's a picture of the back cover of the album that's got your character on it. And he's all like, well, this is like the coolest birthday present ever. <laughs> uh, he was totally digging it. But yeah, they're... they're uh, they're quite the fun band, you know, an amazing two-piece, especially. You only have two friggin' people, and you're playing, like, motorhead covers and shit. Wow. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so we're going to we're gonna cover the uh, Karst Systems and iGlow today, and you want to start at the... Yeah, I wanted to cover, as we get into this, I first wanted to introduce... Uh, an individual that very few people since your your world big hold on hold on now we're not recording yet we're just talking about it yeah yeah i just want to tell you a little bit about it Um, okay but no reference the first uh if we start the first image that i have there should be the one that says uh our valleys says bigfoot seven you want to go from the bottom back up again basically yeah yeah we'll go in reverse order that way um that is an individual, his name is Danny Liska, and very few people know about him. I mean, people outside BMW. But back in 1960-61, he went all the way from Alaska to uh, the South America on a, D- on a BMW motorcycle. And um, he uh, did the same thing then over in Europe, like the following year, went all the way from, like, Scandinavia down to the Horn of Africa. Jesus. And this guy, this guy is just amazing. But what's really cool about him uh, is that he's from Niobrara, Nebraska, 
And his ranch there, guess what name, the name he has for his ranch is the Bigfoot Ranch. No crap. He's a Bigfooter. Totally so he's got it figured out. Yeah. And this guy has traveled everywhere. So I thought I'd just give a little shout out to him. It's actually a car system there. So I thought it would kind of lead into what we're talking about. Plus it's right. World Bigfoot Radio and you got uh, somebody really in the BMW community. He is well known. He's pretty much a legend. I mean, the guy traveled the world, you know, both continents on both sides of the world there and was, um, uh, at the time, you know, in 1960, there was no cell phone, probably not even any telephones. A lot of No, them yeah. Uh, this was like uh, when friggin' Thor Heyerdahl is doing, like, Contiki time period shit, you know. Like, yeah. the world is still relatively low-tech, although we think we're high-tech. <laughs> exactly. So I thought I'd give him some, uh, give him a little shout out. He's he died back in the 90s. I think his wife still lives up in in Niobrara, the little town there. The Bigfoot Ranch is still there, and I use one of his images on my SoundCloud account. So I thought I should give him some credit. But this guy was obviously knew about Bigfoot. He had he was a world traveler. I mean, talk about somebody getting intimate to each country and to, you know, ride a motorcycle through Alaska and then down to, you know, South America and then turn around the next year and ride down through, um, you know, Scandinavia all the way down to Africa. Yeah, that's, uh, you got to be quite the adventurer to be doing stuff like that. And he was a Bigfooter. He believed in Bigfoot. He knew Bigfoot existed, so. Yeah, I thought well, that was cool. Yeah, the more you go all over the place, the more you start realizing that there's shit going on that you're not supposed to think is real. So <laughs> it's not surprising that that would happen along the way too. Hey, I don't know if I told you, but that show we did on um, European Contagion Theory had a couple interesting comments on there, and uh, one of the comments on the show before was even more interesting because apparently somebody who listened to that show went back and and watched the previous one. And said, oh, yeah, I work as a forester in Germany, and I find structures like this in the little forest around here all the time. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I have no doubt that <laughs> there's also a guy who's like official handle is Bigfoot in Germany, and he also contacted me, so I might have him on at some point. But nice. just that one yeah. little show, we got we smoked two of them out of the fucking woodwork right over there in Germany. See, this is how this shit spreads around. How uh, is is like more people aware that you exist at this point? Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> yes. A matter of fact, I uh, my my Facebook. You know, I'm I I enjoy doing this, and I like like doing your show is awesome because then I could just kind of get the information out there. But you know, I'm by no means a social media person, and so I just uh, I've gotten tons of people wanting to 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 uh, befriend me on you know be my friend on on Facebook. So I was like, oh, it's almost overwhelming. But I've gotten some real quality people. Yesterday morning, uh, Igor Bertseff of uh, oh nice, Russia. Igor figured out who you are. Cool. You know, he's a he's member said, of my group. He actually fucking shows up and posts comments on it. <laughs> like if we have something that's like Russia related, I'll just go, hey Igor, have you looked into this one? Within a day or two, there's a comment by him on there. Yeah, I already researched this one. Seems to be valid, you know, or something like that. <laughs> that is awesome, and I found that just very cool. That you, you know, you obviously get connected to to the people who are doing stuff all over the world. So that was great. That's been really cool. I just don't have, you know, the time to be able to do a whole lot with the social media side other than share my information, which I'm doing, and 
and that's what I want to do primarily. I'm a field researcher. I love to get out in the field. You know, that's where my heart's at. And, yep. you know, this is a great opportunity for me to share it on, you know, on World Bigfoot Radio. So that I think, you know, we reach a large audience. But my op, what really I want people to do is to go out and do it, you know, look at the research I've done, build on it. You know, go if if people in Europe are are, are getting turned on to this now, then awesome. Get out there yep. and look and find these things because that's. Well, what I figured thought. that was going to happen because you know, like I said, I already had a friend that was running a group called Scandinavian uh, Bigfoot. Yeah, for that's a while, really and, and she yeah, she she ended up having too many conflicts with her actual life and had to quit doing it, unfortunately. But for the year or so that she was up, she produced a bunch of good stuff. It's still probably up on Crypto Sweden on Facebook if you want to check it out. And I mean, really good. Yeah, um, I mean, and she she contacted a couple of two or three actual researchers over there, one in Norway, two in Sweden, and she found witnesses that had seen it, and she found some actual friggin' evidence, and she went out herself in the field. And found stick and tree structures, just like what you and me are finding, buddy, in fucking Sweden. So there's no doubt in my mind that they're still over there in Scandinavia and Finland. And then you've got the uh, the the ones in Europe, like British Bigfoot. I don't know if you've ever been on their group. They've got a group on uh, Facebook that's, you know, you kind of think like, what? British Bigfoot? No, there's a huge group called British Bigfoot. Yeah. And there's uh, all kinds of people in Britain that are on it. And they're... You know, like gigantically long shot that it is, they're still convinced that there might be some Bigfoot left in England and they're looking for signs of them. Um, so I think that's really fucking cool. So if they've got that kind of ravenous interest in it, you can imagine what the reaction is going to be in mainland Europe when some of the people over there that are peripherally interested in this start getting wind that, oh, by the way, there might still actually be Bigfoot in Europe. You know, I got people that are friends with me that live over there that have actually gone out and done fucking field work looking around just because they're curious about it. One of them lives in the Netherlands. He's gone out with a couple of his friends. He's in his 60s. He's gone out and took a look around the woods to see if they could find any tree or stick structures. So this shit fucking spreads ridiculously. It's bizarre how, uh, just how how it moves around, you know. That's that's awesome, and, you know, and that's ultimately, you know, that's what your show is doing, and it's getting people involved. And people need to realize that these numbers – are bouncing back. So what areas that they, you know, previously thought, you know, they, they weren't there. They, if they had been there at one time, they're probably coming back there. So you've got all this folklore and interest in those areas. Yeah. Uh, go out and then and don't forget the, you know, same up. things happening here in North America. And Kat just mentioned that too. Totally chimed in on your side and agreed. And the last show that I did with her, we were talking about, Type threes and mountain giants, and she said, "Yeah, I'm getting more reports of these things." And you know, there was even one guy who was observing them. He lived on one side of a valley, and he'd see him on the other side of this mountain valley every so often, watching through field glasses. And over a few years, it went from being like five of them to being like fourteen of them. Some fucking thing. So it's like, <clears throat> just like with the regular Bigfoot. Unfortunately, indicators are that type threes are also increasing in number. <clears throat> so even more important for us to get those info about them all. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, there is a convergence on on uh, Homo, Homo sapien and uh, you know Homo ferus and all these different types. Uh, there, there, this is happening, uh, and it's going to only increase as the years go by. This, this is going to take place because we've encroached on so much of of their traditional land and their growing number. Oh, it's just a matter of time when these things converge. So, no doubt yeah. about it. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty bizarre, you know. And like one of the reasons that I chose the uh, the uh, quaint and humble, uh, non-presumptuous title of World Bigfoot Radio is because <laughs> sincerely meant that I want to cover, you know, Bigfoots all over the world. And I've got people yeah. that I know that do Bigfoot stuff all over the world, so why not take advantage of it and do shows with them? I'll have Igor on my show at some point, too. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I got, the, yeah. you know, I got Bob Gimlin lined up. I got Bender Nagel that I can get on my show. So, you know, it's like I'm going to have some fucking big names. I know a couple good researchers down in Australia. One I've already had on my show. He's just a kid. He's already got his own friggin' conference that he's thrown like two years in a row. I think he just turned like 20 or something. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, you know, he's got his own little... Uh, Australian encrypted research organization, ACRO, and he does a newsletter and he's, you know, does TV shows with these other older big name guys down there like Gary Opet. And um, he's had Rex Gilroy at his conference two years in a row, two out of two. And Rex Gilroy is the father of Australian cryptozoology. He's been in the field for 60 fucking years and he's got tons of books out. And I'd love to deliver him on the show. So this is the kind of shit that I'm working on. I'm just trying to get, you know, enough recognition yeah. that I can contact these big fuckers and go, okay, whale, time for you to get on my show. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're doing the right thing and you're building on it and, you know, get, get Igor on there and, and get him one and pe- everybody else will fall in line. Uh, the bottom line is you're expanding the understanding of this and the things that we've talked about on the shows we've done clearly uh, are, is global and reach. And what we're going to talk about yep. today is the same sort of thing. The habitat that I'm going to refer to and get into is uh, is habitat you're going to find anywhere in the world. So that's the kind of thing that I want to make sure that people take from today's show, that this is a, you know, we're, we're discussing this as a global topic and that these, yeah. these homicides exist all over the world, so. Well, and we can, you know, you don't have to hammer that so much. We can bring it in toward the end of the discussion about the, the car systems and stuff, too, that, oh, by the way, they don't just exist in the U.S. There's cave systems yeah. all over the world, and guess where these things are probably spending a lot of their time. And yeah. that's what all the legends say, too. They live underground. Okay, so let's ignore the legends again and go do our own research and find out the legends were right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and you know, that's the thing. When we get into this, I have little stories and stuff I'll I'll, I'll talk about, you know, camping on top of the, these uh these cave systems and that sort of thing. So I can share some uh, personal stories that relate to it. Did you get contacted by Wes yet? Did he get back to you yet? No, no, he hadn't. I gave, uh, he must've given him my number, but I never, Uh, I gave your number. I also gave him the number of somebody else. that has got an encounter story. That's, you know, kind of your, your average scary. I saw Bigfoot story. That's like not really applicable to being on my show because I can't figure out any way to work it into the narrative that I'm building. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed it, but I'm doing this show more like Connections. You remember Connections? Oh yeah. I'm making it so like each show builds on the ones before it. If you don't watch the ones before it, you might end up being lost by some of the later shows. You should yeah. probably watch them in order. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. That's but I got great response on you. Everybody was just so happy that I that finally anyone did a fucking show on tree and stick structure, so they had something to reference, and they loved the fact it was visual. I mean, some of these guys that are, you know, like Colorado Bigfoot and uh, fucking Neo down there, Utah Squatch. Dude, you guys are running around filming these fucking things all day. Why haven't you done a video on tree structure? Oh, that's right. You don't know anything about Okay. <clears throat> But, you know, it's like there's people out there with the capability to do this and even better than what we did, you know, but 
they don't fucking have the information, so they can't put it together and do it. Yeah. So once again, it's like, you know, I get to be the point of the spear and be leading the charge going, by the way, these things fucking mean something. And since we did that show, I've had other people now come out of the woodwork and go, oh, yeah, I know somebody that knows quite a bit about this part of the whole structure thing and stuff. So now they're all going to start coming forward and talking about it. So, yeah, see, it's just like anything else in the Bigfoot community. You do a little bit of prodding, and all of a sudden people start paying attention to it. And I think the best comment that we got on it was on Sasquatch Chronicles' website, where one of Wes's fans came on there and said, thank you so much for shedding some light on a very opaque subject. Yeah, yeah, I read, I saw that. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. But, yeah, everybody really enjoyed it, you know. And I, I got a lot of people that started listening to this early on that don't realize I'm doing visual format now. And they're still, like, listening to me while they're driving or doing housework or something. And they'll go, do you see the image at blah, blah, blah? And they're like, what? And then they're like, you send me a message two days later. Well, I watched the last ten episodes over again because, obviously, I should have watched them. <laughs> That's awesome. I think it's hilarious. Well, anyway, I'm just outside having a quick sig here and go back in where it's quiet and I won't have background noise. Yeah, so I, I basically will just go in reverse order and what, what I have there, starting with our Valley's one, and I'll kind of just briefly talk about this Danny Liska. I just wanted to give him a kind of a shout-out for being a pioneer. You know, he has passed away, but I do use some of his images. And then I'll go in, I'll start into the car system. You know, obviously we'll talk about it. I have just a few little tidbits about Nebraska. I'm going to do a little more micro, like you said, just kind of talk about local things and build on it nationally, stick to the U.S. stuff. And then, I don't know if you noticed it in the last episode, I had a split map that showed um, missing person clusters, national U.S. map, and below it, Bigfoot sightings, national U.S. map. And then the very next one I showed was Karst Systems, national U.S. map. So I've been teasing them about this already. Good. Good, because that's exactly what I want them to see. Because I found, I took a picture, like a screensaver picture of a evidence of giants. There was a show on TV on the History Channel a year or two ago about giants. These guys were looking for giants and trying to find uh, their skeletons. Well, they had a map that just kind of had red. It showed red areas of the country where supposedly bones had been found of, of giant skeletons. So I I did a little screensaver of that map, and then I've got the, the sightings map of the National Data Database of Bigfoot, and then the Karst map too that kind of shows all that too. And it's it's interesting. It does. There's parallels to the yeah. These maps. There's some areas where it seems like it really matches up really well, and the rest yeah. of it you can easily attribute to the fact that well, even though there may not be undergrounds there, there's usable forest and uh, you know food supplies for them to be there and waterways. And so that's why they're there. Yeah, and the the Karst map that I do have, which is the U.S. Karst map, that doesn't necessarily have every area that has Karst systems. It, 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 right. You know, it's got a good percentage of them, but there are areas that there's there's caves and Karst systems there that aren't on this map. So you got to yeah. get out. You know. Yeah, there's some we don't even friggin' know about. Basically, you know, oh, nobody's no, yeah. nobody's found them. So exactly. So this is just these are references, but they're also you know get a Delorme map out and they have topographical information on there and check out your own state. Those Delorme maps are great. Um, well, I got the, have- um, the perfect picture for this that I've been saving for a long time for the thumbnail on this. And I don't know if you've seen it or not. The picture was taken in 
late 1800s in Grand Caverns in Kentucky. And there was this guy who had, of course, the old-fashioned camera back then, stand on the tripod, expose the film. And he was trying an experiment with it, putting in a completely dark cave systems where there was absolutely no background light and exposing the film and leaving it for a day and seeing if it would produce an image. And lo and behold, it turned out it actually frickin' would, which surprised the hell out of him. So he was trying this over and over again, and he was in this one cave system, and he was quite a ways back there all by himself, and he heard something large from deeper in the cave coming toward him. It scared the hell out of him, so he abandoned his camera and got the hell out of there, and he went back with a few armed people like three days later and recovered the camera. And when he got the picture and looked at it, there's three big squatch on the far side of this boulder staring at the camera with glowing eyes. It's fucking obvious, man. So I'm going to use that one for the picture. There's the tie-in right there. Bigfoot glowing (laughs) eyes underground, 1800s. There you have it. Yeah, you got it. Got to know your past to know where we're at here in the present, without a doubt. And yep. people have done, done the diligent work work back then, and we just need to acknowledge it. Yeah, and that's it. You know, I mean, I was watching a show on Bigfoot last night. Uh, Bindernagel was talking about the discovery process and how long it takes sometimes, you know. And he's like, well, you know, the other scientists like to say, well, there was no no knowledge of this before the 1960s and Patterson, well, no, but the 1950s when they found the tracks and named it Bigfoot. And he goes, well, no, but then we go back and here's these other reports and he's going back further and further and further. And he said, the the fact of the matter is they just haven't looked at the data. There's reports of this stuff that go back a couple hundred years if you're willing to look for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's, that's the beauty of it is that we're just, we're connecting the dots and we're utilizing that and in and, and modern uh, science that we have today to help uh, support those things. So mm-hmm. Yeah, we finally got access to all the communications and, and information network we need to actually do it. Yeah, because the scientists aren't doing it for us. So nope. we, you know, Bindernagel even says that too, man. He, he gives us the fucking thumbs up, hats off a bunch of times, practically every speech he does. You know, if it wasn't for the citizen investigators that are going out there doing this, then we wouldn't know anything about these things because science is totally dropping the ball. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Okay, well, going back downstairs here. Get ready to start recording. Yeah, now that everything's over, we've got... uh, Beautiful weather. It's supposed to be in the 70s and sunny for the next week. No, it doesn't matter. Okay, great. All right, <laughs> let me <laughs> let me let me talk us in here. You ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of World Bigfoot Radio, coming to you from the now rain-soaked <laughs> mountains of western Montana. And uh, today we've got back a uh, guest that I had before, and uh, a bunch of people asked questions and wondered if I would have them back again, so I'm having them back again. And we got something really interesting to talk about this time. We're going to talk about uh, Bigfoot's peculiar eyes and underground systems. And so I'd like to welcome today's guest, Rich Sewell. Welcome back, Rich. Dude, good times. Thanks for having me again, bud. Always welcome to be on my show, man. I uh, just love the uh, the information and the the scientific approach that you bring to it. 
everybody can appreciate that. Do some uh, real research, use a scientific method, and uh, figure out what's actually going on here. So, uh, like I said, we're going to be talking a little bit about two different things. Which one do you want to, to uh, start with first? Well, let's start with the car uh, system so we can kind of get into the habitat, and then we'll, we'll go into the iGlow and, you know, how we can tie all that together. Because if they're living in these habitats, they need to be able to see. So Right on. Did you want to do a little shout-out to your local guy over there in Nebraska? You were talking about the super adventurer, and I thought uh, it would be kind of cool to put him on, too. I do, yeah. Thank you. Uh, there is a, a gentleman that back in the early 60s, Danny Liska, and he took a BMW motorcycle from uh, Alaska all the way down to South America, and he um, did the same thing like a year later in Europe. He went from uh, from Scandinavia all the way down to, the, to Southern Africa, and this guy is... Um, very well known in the BMW community because he, he, he wrote a BMW and I think I have a picture of him uh, actually that I'll have that you'll be able to post on there that has him with his BMW in a canoe in like South America. <laughs> Wait, does that count as riding it? <laughs> uh, it looks like he's almost on it. So I would say, Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> as long as he kept it in idle. <laughs> That's right. He probably kept it idling. I don't know. But uh, an adventurer, somebody, you know, that was out uh, being intimate with all of these environments all over the world and uh, just deserves a lot of praise. The big thing that I wanted to share about him is that he had a ranch up in Niobrara, Nebraska. And imagine this, uh, back in the early 60s, the name of his ranch was the Bigfoot Ranch. So Hi there. That's very cool. So this yeah. guy is a world traveler, been there, done it, you name it. He he was there on a motorcycle. He traveled. I mean, there was no communication back in those days. People uh, take for granted having cell phones. There wasn't even telephones in these areas. So this guy was out there on his own on a BMW motorcycle, and he knew he knows about Bigfoot. He's a believer. He knows they exist. Uh, had his ranch after it, and he lived in this uh, Verdigree Valley area, which is part of a car system, so I thought it was a, a good segue to kind of get into that, but I just wanted to give a shout out to him. He passed away in the early 90s, and I do use uh, an image that he has from one of uh, a painting that was done, and I use that image on my um, SoundCloud account for all the recordings and stuff that I post, so it's a it's like a white Bigfoot, white hair walking through a river and in the distance you can see a guy with a flashlight so it's really cool it says knox county on it it's in nebraska so you know he's from nebraska probably little known i mean the bmw community i'm sure people know about him but uh very few people probably know that this guy was was a was a believer in bigfoot and and you know i just thought it was cool i wanted to give a shout out to him so well, very cool. Yeah, big shout out to the, the Bigfoot heroes of the past. There's one that most folks don't know about, and right over there in the middle of the country in Nebraska, you wouldn't expect it. Uh, so extremely cool there, and right near home stomping grounds, too. So he had a karst system underneath the ranch? Yeah, that whole area, um, it's a, it's like a vertigree valley, and, you know, we start talking about these valleys, how these car systems will work, but uh, typically um, there's a river, a river valley, and that sort of thing, and he um, lived in this uh, Knox County area where there was a large vertigree river, 
And in Nebraska, one thing about Nebraska that I wanted to share that most people don't realize is that uh, when you're talking about um, having, the, the, for one, it has the large Ogallala aquifer, so there's a lot of water in Nebraska. But the big thing that's for Bigfooters is is that Nebraska has more miles of river uh, front than any state in the country. So most people had no idea of that, but we have literally uh, more miles of river than anywhere else in the country. So that's a heck of a lot wow. of, uh, of, of, of areas where Bigfoot could be moving through, and uh, Nebraska has that plentiful of that. But there's the Verdigree River that runs up by where he was up, and he lived in Niobrara, which is right in the um, confluence of the Missouri River and the Niobrara River. And um, when I first got into uh, the first expedition I ever went on was in western Nebraska, and the river systems moved from from uh, west to east and north to south in Nebraska as they all kind of ascend towards the Missouri River um, and the Platte River. And what what I'd found when I was out into out into the Pine Ridge National Forest on the first expedition I ever did, that's where the Niobrara River starts, and it's literally about far enough. It's you could literally jump over the river at that point. It's so small. It comes out of uh, <laughs> yeah. It comes out of the the higher elevation. And Nebraska has some very unique uh, topography. In the western part of Nebraska, they have. Uh, the up in this Pine Ridge area, they have it's very similar to the Black Hills. It's 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 really a mirror type of um, kind of low mountain range like the Black Hills has. And so, you know, right. and if, you're, if you're looking at a map of the U.S., you'll notice that that part of the state is sort of snuggled right in between the edge of Colorado and the edge of Wyoming. So perhaps no surprise that the landscape's going to start going upward at that point. Yeah, yeah, Nebraska definitely has the higher elevation uh, up in those up in the western part, and then it all kind of goes down towards the Missouri River. So, in this particular area up in Pine Ridge, they have 5,000 plus uh, um, low kind of mountain range in there, very uh, uh, thick kind of valleys and timber, uh, pine timbers, and then they have coming literally out of the ground, they have springs which are these karst-type systems. And so here's this water starts just coming out of the ground and starts uh, trickulating down, and then it flows into the Niobrara River. Like I said, it's it's only about as wide. You could literally jump across it. And by the time <laughs> it gets to the uh, Missouri River, when it's on the other side of Nebraska, it's it's very wide, uh, you know, a quarter mile or so. It's, it, it becomes a very big river. So um, it's a large river system, very cool. Wow. Yeah. I just wanted to let the, and there's a lot of uh, silt sand that's moved in there. It's actually probably about 250 yards, uh, probably wide at its widest, but it does go through a lot of can, pine canyons. And the other thing that's interesting, too, this, this Niagara River, is there's in north northern Nebraska, they have glacial uh, canyons, some remnant glacial creeks that uh, flow into the Niagara River. And these creeks actually were there um, so long ago, they were carved out, these canyons were carved out by the, the glacial till, and the creeks that were left behind that were still there, they were there you know, prior to this glacialization, they still have trout in them that you'll only find like up in Minnesota. Huh. Uh, so you have these isolated pockets. There's algae in these systems that are there that 
that you can't find anywhere else either that is growing. So these are remnant pockets of just ancient habitat, and there's Bigfoot in all these areas. So just kind of wanted to share a little, some interesting background in Nebraska, and then a prominent, you know, individual who had, who came from Nebraska who, who made a, a mark in the world and, and travel. And I just wanted to also kind of highlight some of this, the unique the topography and things of the state of Nebraska. It's just a, a uh, people, uh, you know, think it's a flyover state, but there's really some beautiful, uh, you know, topography in Nebraska and things, uh, uh, national forests and that sort of thing that, that do have excellent Bigfoot habitat. So, right on. That for, pe for people that are not exactly sure where Nebraska is, especially like listeners in other countries and stuff, uh -huh. just take a map of the continental United States, point your finger at the middle of it. That's Nebraska. <laughs> exactly. Yep, the middle, the... The Missouri River uh, borders one side, and then you get the Rocky Mountains towards the other, and there as you go to Colorado. So, and then, and and there's this large aquifer that's right in the middle. It just uh, really has a lot of water. You know, the waters from the mountain regions of Colorado uh, uh, essentially filter into that underground aquifer, and so you've got a large amount of cattle land in the prairie there. That was the largest prairie. It's kind of this. Sahara, I guess, like prairie that we have there where a lot of the, the buffalo and all that used to roam. And they still have buffalo and antelope, but uh, nowhere to, now they're pretty much, it's pretty much cattle country and a lot of that. But uh, tons of water, though, that's the key. And when you have this, uh, you've got, when you're a large uh, predator and you eat meat, you're omnivorous, uh, especially when you're eating large amounts of meat, you have to have water to help digest that. So it's a state like Nebraska does have ample water for a uh, large omnivorous uh, predator like Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, uh, in the, one of the places I used to like to go check out was over on the east side of Lake Pepin in Wisconsin. And maybe like two miles in from where the lake is, there's one of these little car systems. And it's it's fairly small. It's in this one little valley. Now, who knows where it connects to from there. But it's real interesting because there's a spring that comes out of the side of one of these uh, huge bluffs, and they've tested the water from it. And apparently, from whatever method that they have of testing it, they could tell it's underground for like a couple thousand years before it comes up there. And wow. uh, there's a couple other little um, springs that feed other little rivers that are in this valley. They're all just brutally cold because it comes up from underground. And one of them's really interesting because it's, like you said, it's just barely... You might have to just like jump a little bit to jump from one side to the other, like maybe four feet wide or something. Yeah. And it comes out of the floor of the valley and it flows for about 60 feet and then it disappears back into the, the underground of the valley again. So there's this weird little stream that's like 60 feet long and it's really strange. But that's an example of the kind of stuff that you can find in areas like this. Yeah, yeah. When the car system will look at some of these landscape maps that we have, that I have, and it definitely something like that. You know, then there's it's flowing underground, and that that the flow of that water is what uh, these porous car systems, the sandstone that is in those, it, it just creates cavernous uh, areas, and then you've got this flowing water there. So, if you lived underground and you had water access year round. Uh, how awesome would that be? You know, yeah, that would be. And I've been in a lot of big sandstone caves. They have them around Minneapolis, St. Paul, and back in the days of the bootleggers and whatnot, they made all of these caves. They would uh, age wine in there. They would grow mushrooms in there. They would store provisions in there. And of course, the bootleggers and uh, the uh, you know. <clears throat> 
criminals from Chicago would have their uh, speakeasies under hidden underground there. And uh, the, the thing is, is that even and there's an underground lake there too that flows in from the Mississippi. And um, would not recommend trying to go in and investigate that. You might get killed. <clears throat> uh, we wisely decided to not go very far into it uh, when it became apparent what was going to go happen there. But uh, the uh, the point here that I'm trying to make is that any of the sandstone, uh, it's really soft. It's not only easy for water to make big cave systems in it, but I mean you can like basically tear it off the wall with your hand. Something like Bigfoot could easily tunnel it too. Yeah, exactly. And I've got some pictures we'll get to that have a, it was a called Robert's Cave, but it has some, uh, uh, it was used to store beer. And it was a guy, just one guy used a pickaxe that the original cave itself was just uh, essentially receding, washed out area of sandstone. And then they just made it bigger uh, that they used for, um, to store beer. So very, and this was back in the 1800s, so that was very common for early settlers to use that as well as they were taking that from the Native Americans because the Native Americans used those uh, areas also. So uh, right. very long history of using these sorts of car systems and uh, and these Dakota sandstones because it's just easy to create a, um environment. And those environments are 50 to 55 degrees year-round. So right. that is perfect. That's a perfect environment to stay in uh, year-round. It'll keep you warm in the winter and uh, cold, cool in the summer. So. Yeah. Well, let's think about this now. We're, we're Bigfoot, and we've got a cave system that we can live in. And we, we come up to the surface when we want to get food, which mostly is at night. And being that we spend a lot of time in the caves, it's probably easier to see in the dark anyway. And we can run around mostly pretty sneakily and stealthily and not have anybody see us and get our food and then go back to the cave. Well, now what happens in the winter? Now this brings me to the question of how much do they know or utilize food preservation? Do they know enough to you know, pick certain plants that they can store? You can throw a whole bag of potatoes into your cave and it'll be good all winter. Um, you know, if you kill a deer or something, you can leave it outside the the entrance to the cave where it's 20 below, it's definitely not going to rot. There's your refrigerator. So I could see there'd be like a lot of possibilities for them to actually be able to hoard and storage food if they knew what they were doing, if they're that smart to do it. During the summer months in these undergrounds and then during the winter, they could pretty much retreat there and they wouldn't have to hardly come out at all. Yeah, and I, I think there's some evidence that that has taken place. Uh, when we were, when I went on an expedition at uh, Yellow River State Forest in Iowa, uh, it wasn't in a cave, but it was on a outcropping of uh, a, a large ridge line that overlooked a river. And a, a couple of the investigators had found this area, and they had a bunch of scat that, that was laying all around this outcropping below it. And so they went up to take a look and see what it what what it was all about. And it was just kind of a ledge. But in the wall, in the porous wall of this outcropping were a bunch of tiny holes. And in these holes, there was acorns, there was crayfish, there was like these little storage places. So literally, if you poke a hole into this Dakota sandstone and store stuff in there, you've got little deposits of, of food. And I thought that was fascinating. So if they were doing that on this ledge uh, uh, on, on, a, uh, in our, on a ridge line, they certainly could do it underground. 
Uh, well, that was not not only would it store it, it would dry it too. Because if you think about sandstone, at the point where sandstone gets wet, it falls apart. Sandstone is yeah. dry, so if you cram anything with any dampness into a hole in sandstone, the sandstone's going to suck the moisture out of it. Yeah, so that should preserve it and uh, keep it for as long as you need it in there. And I thought that was fascinating. So yeah, I th- I think there's good reason to believe they're doing that in these in these caves, and that would that might uh, actually makes sense that they're doing that and they're able to um, stay there secluded as long as they choose to and if the weather breaks and they can get out without making too much uh, notice in the, where they're at um, then you know you see you know obviously we see them out during the winter uh, have yeah. any sighting activity but certainly they could lay low for as long as they want during a storm too you know yeah they have yeah well I mean do. if you think when there's a cold snap when it's like 20 below for a couple weeks or something, or when there's a big blizzard for three or four days, they can just avoid the whole damn mess and go underground, not have to even deal with it. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and I, and these, these are conducive systems to that, especially if you have uh, running water year round through those um, car systems, Uh, you've got, you don't need to leave the cave. If you got a little stream running through there, these car systems have wet and dry um, caves. And so just the one that you were talking about is a prime example of you had water coming out of, out from under the ground and then going back in. So it was, yep. run, it, it was running somewhere. And that's, that's an ex, a great example of how uh, they wouldn't even need to leave the cave if they got this running water coming right out of it. Coming yeah, right exactly. The or if the cave was created by running water that's still running, uh, you know, yeah. at that point. And that's typically how these are made. They're made by flood. You know, you have a flood, they wash out some of the sandstone, and over years you just keep having these these seasonal floods that come in, and then when the water uh, recedes, it's creating a cavern. And so you might still have some of this um, remnant stream running through there, but you, you, the cavern just keeps getting bigger and bigger from over the years of, of you know, water moves tremendous amount of, of silt and dirt. So you could literally, these caverns are created that way, and, and some of these things run for miles in areas. So they could literally be accessing these caverns for long periods of, of without even coming above ground. I have no doubt they can do that. There's some examples um, through in Native American uh, up in uh, the Omaha Res they, they, I was told stories of, of caves up in that area that literally were big enough to ride your horse through and that they had that large groups of people would hide with their horses in these caves. So, I mean, that's ample room for any large predator to stay in. Yep. And the thing is, a lot of these caves are closed off now, so you can't get into them. Uh, you, they, you know, they've been known about them. They know they existed, but then... You know, you don't even know where the entrance are of our, you know, these caves anymore. So it's it's interesting. There, there's a lot of connection that you know, once they, once they go underground, they just, you know, that's that's off the radar and they disappear. Yeah, you know, and also these, uh, just as an example here, not talking about the car systems, but just about other things because there's been humans mining on this continent for a long long time way back before the white man ever showed up there was people digging mines on this continent and we've got over 2,000 known abandoned mines just in western montana 
So imagine all of the other mines that humans dug at some point for one reason or another that are abandoned and not known at this point. And like we were talking about the car systems a little bit earlier, those the ones that we've got on the map are just the ones that we know about. There could be a tremendous amount more of this stuff that we just aren't even aware of yet, or huge cave systems we haven't found, or, you know, look at like mammoth caves and some of that down in Kentucky. They haven't even finished mapping those. They've been mapping them for years, and they still haven't got it all mapped out. These things are gigantic. Yeah, and that that's a good point because uh, I do have a map that you'll have posted here on, on the show of the U.S. Karst map, and that's a good indicator of where cave systems can exist. But I agree, it's not the only place they do exist because they do exist in areas that aren't on this map. So it's a good indicator of, you know, the potential for these habitats where they're at and that they have karst cave systems there. But we have we're, we just basically scratch the surface when it comes to finding caves. They're they're in areas that we simply would not even have a, been able to map yet. So I think that's a good point. And I obviously that's where the Bigfoot, that's where they're hanging in areas yeah. that we're not going to. So. Um, right, and, and ultimately what we're talking about here isn't just a geological survey. We're talking about this whole thing in relation to Bigfoot. So keeping in mind that Bigfoot is an opportunist. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a natural cave in order for him to take advantage of it. I mean, you've got plenty of evidence that abandoned buildings and barns and whatnot, they'll take up residence there. If there's no humans around there using it, hey, it's theirs as far as they're concerned. Um, so it just makes sense that if there's some big, you know, played out mine or something that we've abandoned, uh, that they're going to take a look at it and go, hey, this is a nice house. I can take this over. There's nobody here. And there's, you know, there's there are a lot of examples of river systems having underground caves that connect to them with water, yep. the water flowing into that. And so what a great way for a Bigfoot that we know they're excellent swimmers. They have a hooded nose so they can swim. We have more than enough sightings that seen them swim in, in, uh, in rivers and, and lakes and oceans. And uh, so they're, they're out, they can swim and, what better way to access and have a secret access place than to have an underground cave system connected to like the Missouri River? Yeah. And you get in and out of that cave system, you swim in and out of it, no human is coming in there. No way. Uh, that's just you know, I actually I, I I don't know if you've heard this, but there is a story that relates to that. And I can't I was just trying to think here while you were talking if it was Bigfoot Outlaws or where I heard it exactly, but it's somewhere down in the south and someone had uh um, there was a long-standing tradition that there were caves underneath one side of this river and, you know, don't go over in that area. The area was kind of shunned. There's something dangerous that lives over there and whatnot. And, of course, the local kids, ha, 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 that's, a, you know, let's go swim there. Let's go check and see if there's a, a cave system over there. And lo and behold, there was an underwater access to an under, underground cave system that was on that side of the bank. And uh, apparently they found... Uh, there was horrible stink and evidence something had been going in and out of there, and uh, they sort of assumed that, yeah, the monster that they were talking about does actually live in this cave, and let's get out of here <laughs> sort of thing. So uh, there's stories that actually back this up. And also at the beginning of the, the show, the thumbnail that I'm going to use for this show is a picture from the late 1800s that a uh, gentleman who was doing research on 
trying to do photography research, basically. This is in the olden days, like if you picture an old West movie or something where they're showing the photographer on Main Street taking the pictures of the, the victims of the gunfighters or something. They got the tripod camera, and they have to pull up the thingy and expose the film and hold it for a little while and then close it off again, and, you know, the old-fashioned thing. Well, he was curious to see if you were in a completely lightless environment like an underground where there was no background light, if he exposed the film for long enough, if it would actually work. And he was experimenting with different kinds of film. And he had found one that seemed to actually work. So he was trying this out, and he went way back into uh, the Grand Caves or Grand Caverns in Kentucky um, and left the ca- set up the camera and was going to do a long exposure there and see if he could get a good picture of this one cave. And uh, he was back there by himself, and he heard noise coming from deeper in the cavern system, and it sounded like something big, and it sounded like it was coming toward him. So he panicked and just kind of left his camera and with the film exposed and ran the hell out of there. And uh, apparently he came back like two, three days later with a few people with weapons to retrieve his camera. And uh, <clears throat> the in- very interesting picture resulting from that was a thumbnail picture. There's the cave. There's three objects that look like Bigfoot and they have glowy eyes and they're looking at the camera. So draw your own conclusions from that. But again, this is, you know, over 100 years ago, close to 150 years ago, that this guy did this. And there's the evidence of what it is that we're talking about tonight. Yeah, that just totally corroborates. I love that you found that picture. And that just points out, you know, we're, we're, we're doing research and we have to reach back. You have to know the past. you got to look at people have been out here doing this and finding things. We're just trying to connect it to the modern science and, and things like these mapped car systems and that sort of thing. So, you know, this research has been done. People are out there finding these things. We're just we're pulling them out of the archives and bringing them out to the people. So that's an important fact to know. I mean, that's just awesome to know. Somebody took a picture of, of eye glow and picture of, of Bigfoot and caves 100 years ago. Amazing. Yeah, I had, I had actually seen this picture floating around for like 15, 20 years now and always wondered what the backstory was on it and where it came from. And just a few days ago, somebody had put up a little article about the picture and what it was and where it came from. And I went, oh, my God, this is exactly what me and Rich are going to be talking about. Okay, I know what picture to use for this one now. But, I mean, you know, there's a perfect example. This guy knows nothing about Bigfoot, probably never did know anything about it, was in this cave system just randomly taking pictures and got a picture of these three Bigfoot-looking creatures staring at his camera. Uh, So, you know, how does that just, like, randomly pop into existence if there's nothing to it? Yeah, and if you look, uh, what I had was the Sasquatch sightings of U.S. and Canada. There's a – it shows a graph of all the uh, sightings – in the whole country, and then if you look at the karst maps, there are some really compelling connections, parallels, that these karst systems are conducive to Bigfoot uh, activity and Bigfoot sightings. So I think that's really cool. You'll be able to see that when you post that. And I think the other one I'm going to put up here for the benefit of the folks, since we have these two really good maps where we got all the sightings and we've got the uh, of the United States and, and then all of the uh, car systems, of the United States. I'm also going to post up the map of all the missing person clusters of the United States. So you guys can take a look at all three and decide what you think. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because they're, they're in these things, you know, they say they're, there's, you know, you know, when there's connection to these sorts of things, there's a story to it. And 
clearly the, the, there's connections to all of these things. So there's much more to all this than meets the eye. And, you know, we've got cave systems, we've got um, uh, eye glow that we'll be talking about here in a little bit, how I believe they, you know, why this makes sense and why they would be utilizing these caves. And, you know, these car system, also the, um, the next things that we have too is the actual landscapes of car systems, how they look. I think it's important for people to really see, you know, you get uh, one of them is kind of a farm type area would be maybe in the, in the plains or in the, um, uh, in a, an area where there's a river, a riparian forest type system. And then there's another one kind of an alpine mountain system, but they're car systems. They're the same thing. There's water, there's flowing water that goes underground and creates caves and then uh, flows out to uh, larger river systems. And so we've got these same things in mountain regions that we're having also in uh, low, uh, lower level regions like the Mississippi and Missouri rivers uh, regions, and they have cave systems that are cavernous that can that have the ability to sustain um, uh, Bigfoot uh, populations in all over these areas. So uh, there's definitely something to this. I'm a firm believer in this karst theory that this this is another way to to conduct research, find this a karst system in your area, look, and then build on looking for these tree and sticks structure signs that we've, we've talked about too. That's an, a great thing that Duke's been doing. He's been, each show, he just builds on. Uh, it's kind of a learning tool. If you follow his shows, he's building on this. He's giving you all the keys to this, uh, to understanding what, what uh, a lot of researchers have put a ton of time into. And he's just handing, you just have to listen and follow along because there's been a, a ton of research done in the field to corroborate these sorts of things. So I've camped, uh, you know, I camped above cave systems, and this there was a uh, Steve Moon in Iowa is a BFRO uh, investigator. He was a caver before he got into Bigfooting. So the, <laughs> that connection right there. Yeah, he, he was into cave, being a caver. He's an archaeologist, was a caver, and then he got into Bigfooting. So imagine that. Uh, I, I don't know if you caught the earlier show that I did with Lynn Poole where he was actually a town marshal at one point and got into a gunfight with a Bigfoot. Bigfoot didn't have a gun, but he did, unfortunately, for the Bigfoot. But one of the things that he did in the area that he grew up in, which was an area where he was chased by a Janosqua, uh, is he did a lot of caving. He was actually involved in doing cave rescues and everything else. So he was intimately connected with the whole cave thing. And he brought that up, that he there were some caves in the area he absolutely would not go into. As soon as he got near him, he got a creepy feeling and went, no, no I'm just not even going in that one. And this is yeah. a fearless caver. Uh huh. And I, I certainly, you know, there's, there's good reason to trust your instincts in that. I know uh, on the Omaha Res that we, we've identified, or at least they've told me that there's some cave systems. They know where to get into them at, but nobody's willing to go in there right now. <laughs> so uh -huh. if I want to explore. Uh, I want to go. I, they, they have so much activity above ground that we haven't had to go into these caves, but. We, we're we're identifying them, then at some point we're going to figure out how to get in there. Uh, but it's it's it is that's a different you know you're you're going into their cave where they they have every advantage if they can see in this environment and that's their home. You have to you know be very you have to approach that um, you know very carefully. <laughs> and, yeah, and and you know again look at look at the the, the precedent for this. Go back. 
in uh, in the record of what humans say about these things. If you talk to most of the native tribes, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, well, the little people and then Bigfoot and whatnot, they just live underground and they come up at night or sometimes they're around during the day, but they can live underground. And then you go back to European legend, same thing, where the ogres and trolls live. Well, they live underground. Where the little people live. Well, they live underground. And the other thing that's that's actually, there's been two stories of people kidnapped in North America by mountain giants and having then later gotten away from them again to tell the story. And both of them claim these things lived in underground caverns and that they had hidden entrances. And in the one case, it was like a, a boulder that a human couldn't even think about moving, that it was using for a door. And as soon as it got inside, it just pulled the boulder back in again. So there's no doubt yeah. there. Yeah, there's no way we would know that. It just looked like a mountainside. And then, yep. you know, if they have these entrances, and uh, like along the Missouri River, where they, there's a cave uh, with a river, um, you know, a car system where it's, it's, it's a river is flowing into the, the Missouri River through the cave system, and it's all underground, you wouldn't know. Uh, you know, you, you just have no access to that. You wouldn't know it. And nobody's scuba diving in the Missouri River with the, the way that's going. So um, yeah. you just, the entrances are just not accessible to us. Another interesting picture that I sent you, and it, it has, like, it's along a river. You can kind of see a, a picture of a boat, and then you see two figures in kind of a mound uh uh, cavern kind of uh, along this river. And this actually is a picture that Michelangelo had painted in the Vatican. And it's the last judgment uh, uh, with, with Jesus in the Vatican that is uh, that was executed on the altar, behind the altar there in the, in the Vatican. And this has some interesting pictures that are uh, or interesting figures that are in this mound are are hairy individuals that look very similar to Bigfoot. And they're in a mound underground by a river. Imagine so that. There it is, yeah, there it is, Homo ferris, in a mound underground by a river, hidden in plain sight by the Vatican. So that's why we never found out about Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, world's most famous artist, Michelangelo, paints it, yeah. and it's right in our face. And On public display in the Vatican, and nobody's paying attention. See, now this is the problem. Nobody's paying attention. It's not that it's not out there. Nobody's paying attention. Exactly. How many people have looked at that, that uh, Last Judgment uh, painting of Michelangelo? And this is clearly a part of it. He painted this. Uh, and it is right there by a river, and there these two figures are in this mound along the river. So, uh, without question, he 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 did an excellent job of painting Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, what I think is interesting is it's a split chamber. You can see the the split chamber, and on on the right side is like a giant or a human that's uh, apparently not too happy, and it looks like maybe they're about to be burnt to a crisp or something. Um, sort of a hell-like thing there. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then on the left, you've got this kind of nice cozy cave with a Bigfoot sort of hobnob and not even aware of this other thing's going on, apparently. And uh, <laughs> it's pretty strange. It is. That, it, I, I had to include that because that I totally believe they, they are accessing, they're having these caves by rivers, and the fact that it was in that painting, and I just couldn't ignore it. It's It's similar kind of karst-type system, so... Had to include yeah. that one. Uh, you just got this was just almost too good to be true. Uh, 
folks, look for look look at that painting yourself. Pull it up online and find that picture. It's at the very bottom of the picture uh, by the river. You'll be able to see it. But uh, this is just a cutout part that we have that you'll see here on the um, on YouTube. But it's very interesting. You know, had to include that one. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah, this is like most people. I'm sure are not very much aware that this exists or anything because they're just not in the Vatican looking for Bigfoot evidence. <laughs> so on, <laughs> on to the next picture. We've got a spring coming up from underground here. Where's this one at? Yeah, this one is in Iowa, and this was an area that I actually <laughs> done um, some expeditions in, and I did some private expeditions here. Um, this has, it's a cave system, but you can clearly see this underground spring out. It's just coming out from right under the ground. And it's, it's fast flowing water, very cold and clear. And yep. we had, we camped uh, literally on top of the cave system that this was uh, coming from. And there was a sinkhole not very far from my tent. And we believed actually they were coming in and out of the sinkhole also, which is another thing you want to look for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sinkholes, uh, you know, are obviously your collapsed caves. And um they they're inconspicuous things for them to come in and out of. They literally would just have to pull the ground up a little bit, slip in and out of there, and it's a secret entrance. And we yep. really believe that they were coming in and out of this sinkhole that was there. It was uh it was in a real wooded area and then you had this kind of depression and then this cave system was on the other side of it. But we literally were camped on top of the cave and that was uh that was an ex those expeditions I've done there really helped me understand that the subterranean nature of Sasquatch and Bigfoot, that uh, this was clear that they were living in these areas. They had year-round water and that they uh, could disappear at any time. You know, mm -hmm. they, they could get and how do they manage to do that? You know, the other thing that always gets me about them is especially in climates where you've got a lot of winter and a lot of snow on the ground. Yeah, they leave tracks in the snow. But really, we should be seeing a lot more tracks in the snow than we do. And the further north you go and you talk to the natives about that, the more and more they'll tell you, well, they just go underground during the winter. Yeah, yeah, I totally believe that. And it, it makes sense now. And when you when you look at these karst uh, landscapes that we have posted, you'll be able to see how easy it would be for them to have access to water if they could see in these environments, which that's the whole thing about the eye glow that we'll get into, which they can, then they have nothing uh, holding them back from living in there. Uh, if they got water access and they um, can get it, they can stay there while the weather gets bad. You know, like, you know, in Nebraska and other areas, we'll have snow, um, we'll have snow, it'll be snowy for a month or, or just a couple weeks, and then there'll be breaks in the snow where it's melted, and, and they can get out and run around and do some, gather some more things, and then get back in just when they need to, you know, just stay right. in these systems when they have to. And so it's, there's, there's plenty of, re, uh, you know, access for them to be in and out of there when they choose to, but they can stay down in these systems and be completely covert from from anybody, uh, and you wouldn't see any tracks or anything. You just wouldn't think they were there, right. but they are. And this leads me to bring up another point that I should mention, which may be, I may be sidetracking us a bit on this one, but just for people to consider. A lot of the uh, missing 411 reports of people disappear right before storms, right before blizzards, right before there's a nasty weather event. Um, which, if you think about it, would be a great time to hunt. 
You go and yeah. grab something, and you don't have to worry about pursuit because the nasty weather event is going to wipe out all the traces of your trail. And if you're then going underground with it, there's no way they're ever going to find you. Yeah. There'll be no evidence of you literally just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing there that that we'd you'd be able to track them. Uh, you know, they get underground. We just don't we don't do well with underground. Obviously, uh, people hiding underground is is always been a way to to disappear. So, um, yeah, perfect example. That's that's, that's an excellent example of how that could yeah. be tiny. That it's it's a uh, creepy example, and I'm not pointing the finger of blame at Bigfoot because there's other things that live underground. Remember, but it's just something yeah. to consider if these the creatures can sense incoming weather and i mean hey people with arthritis can tell two days in advance when it's going to rain there might you know it could well be within the range of possibility that they could sense a big incoming storm system and go hey perfect time to go hunt let's go grab stuff we can't usually get away with you know, you know let's go I, grab the I, farmer's I, prime pit pri, uh prize pig because he won't be able uh, to follow our tracks <laughs> exactly well i can tell you uh just when when i was on the omaha res back in august we had uh, the expedition and the final when we did a, a remote camp, the weather was really it started it, the 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 worst of the weather was to the south of us, but it was just whipping up lightning and and rain and it was just eerie environment. But it almost emboldened it seemed like the Bigfoot because they were coming up close. So I have no doubt that they they get active and it's almost like a, a some sort of um, yes uh, hunting. A tool that they use to get to, to go out and do stuff during these times, but they were really active. They were just emboldened by the the weather. So uh, there's something to that. I think you're right, Duke. I have no doubt about it. I was I was surprised to see that. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of one of those things that it kind of always creeped me out, and I always went, uh, you know, it seems like they know when bad weather is going to hit and go hunting right before it, and then there's mm-hmm. no traces. And this comes up a lot with Wendigos. <laughs> Uh, where the legends even talk about if you go out during a blizzard, you're risking getting killed by one of these things because that's when they go out and hunt because nothing else moves around in blizzards. They just huddle in one place, so they're easy targets. And, of course, during the blizzard, hunting means that when the blizzard passes, there's not going to be any tracks for anybody to follow because the blizzard's going to get rid of it. That's right. Yeah, and they, they... Think about these things all the time, how to cover their tracks and how to stay stealth. There's a picture of the running stream that we have here. And if if you can see, it's like the second or third one. There's a, there's a, uh, there is a log cra- crossing the stream. Can you see that with another log holding it up? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That doesn't look normal. It looks like it was put there. And it looks like it was the log holding it up. It's literally stuck in between. That log is like split, and it's kind of stuck in between it. I think uh, a young one was using that just to access the water and to take a drink, and then they could step off there. I just thought that was fascinating. It did not right. look like that was falling that way. And kind of a sneaky way to take a drink without leaving a track. You can grab on with one hand and just lean down, touch your lips to the water, suck it up, and not have to ever put your foot near it. Yeah, and that that is common, especially when you have real muddy streams um, uh, and you've got a lot of mud around them. We uh, that's definitely something that an old researcher in Iowa told me, Jerry Ulrich. He said that they will push a tree down into the river, and then they they just access 
the on the tree they access the river to get a drink and so they're not right. leaving any footprints on that muddy muddy right. river just, i mean they they think about these things this is what they're yeah. doing they yeah. have all the techniques to hide in the wild and we think we know everything and they hide it right in our face they push a tree yeah. down on the river and they enter that way and we're like oh i never see i fish here all the time i never see any footprints oh really yeah. that tree that got pushed over <laughs> It suspiciously yeah. fell over when none of the other trees around it did, and there was no storm. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. You know, just to give the other side of the coin to this, conversely, they're so aware of what the human presence in their environment is like that if they're in areas where there aren't any humans around, they'll make dumb mistakes. And prime example of that is a guest that I got coming up here whose brother actually researches this one area occasionally. He knows they're around there, but nobody ever goes to this place. It's way out in the middle of nowhere, and he rarely goes there. So they're pretty lackadaisical about it, and they've got pictures of not only adult, but squatchlet tracks all over the place in this mud next to this little riverbank, which in an area where there was humans, no way in hell would they let that happen. But since there's no humans around, they really don't care that much. Yeah, exactly. Or if they're in an area like on the uh, Omaha Res where they come into town all the time, they're literally coming into town and they're they're looking through garbage cans. They're if people discard a deer in the yard, they're going to go eat that. Yep. Um, they'll leave a print every now and then because they just don't care. They know that you know and they. They that they're there, so why bother being that careful anymore? They're not going to yeah. stop us. Yeah, yeah, they know we're here, so who cares? Yeah. yeah, it's just it's kind of weird the way they react like that. And apparently, in this area, as you'd expect in areas where they interact in you know human suburbs and stuff like that, they're not quite so freaked out by humans. Now, this area they had squatchlets, and they were in the middle of nowhere. And, man, when he got up there, they had aggressive behavior every time and wanted to get him out of there. And then when his sister, who I also know, went up there, and here's the beauty of this encounter, they're both going to be on the show, she had the same thing happen. She actually got hit by a, a good-sized uh, chunk of wood that they threw at her and uh, had a several vocalizations, you know, get out of the area. <laughs> and she snapped a couple interesting pictures, one back over her shoulder that shows a mama and a squatchlet sitting back in the tree line about 30 feet away looking at her. So they were right up on her, and they were not happy that she was there, and they made it very clear that you need to leave right now. Yeah, and they will do that. And that's interesting, you know, they, they do, they throw, I've had stuff thrown at me uh Quite a bit. Just, I mean, even recently they were throwing rocks at my tent while I was snoring. But uh, <laughs> yeah, as mentioned in last episode, yeah, that was funny. Uh, and I, you know, Barry even mentioned to me when I talked to him. He goes, you know, when after even we got in back in the tent after you know we got up and we had shined flashlights around at five in the morning because we had such these these wood knocks were just unbelievable. They just blasted us out of the tent. We we got up and looked around, but we were so tired. It was like 5.30. We decided we'd just try to go back to bed. And so when we laid back down, as soon as I rolled over, uh, Barry said that the side of tent that I was laying on moved back out like something was had been looking in at us. Uh, oh, God. Little tents that just the top of it is mesh, and then you have your wind, you know, fly uh over top of it so it's all meshed and then you just had that wind fly over it well it must have been pushing the mesh part down and pulling up the wind fly to be to be looking so at it so it could peek in yeah so it peak and then when i rolled over it quickly went back because barry said i watched that whole thing just recite recite back and i was like 
oh, well, you could have told me something at that time. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you might have mentioned that while I was laying one foot away from it. <laughs> Literally inches from a big foot. But uh, at any yeah. rate, we both had gotten grabbed that night. They were grabbing our feet. They they pushed in one side of my uh, tent um, where you, I had there's a little mesh thing. that it's, it's just It was a four-man tent, but if you know how tents are, Two people can fit in a four-man tent, and that's about it. Well, it was Barry and I, and uh, the one side of it had this mesh kind of uh, a little zipper bag that you could um, you put stuff in. And that zipper bag, it was pushed down so far, it rubbed on my leg, and then they grabbed my foot. So uh, that was interesting. They were in very close. And I do believe the when the alpha male came there and those wood knocks that we had that were just unbelievably loud, I believe that he was directing that not only at us, but he was directing it at the juveniles that were there. Like, you guys are uh, need to get in line. Do not mess yeah. with these people. I'm, you're not supposed to do that. And yeah, leave enough. the humans alone. Enough. This is enough. You know, it's like parents coming home and the kids are screwing around. That's it. And I, I totally believe that's what part of that was. Wow. That was yeah, uh, it sounds like the ones you had up by the camp there were not at all shy about messing with you guys and trying to get you to get, leave the area at all. They were being pretty insistent. They certainly were. Uh, they were all over. And uh, when I, I, I had, um, I was in my tent by myself for a while before Barry, he had to take a group back down. He didn't want to stay up there, which is understandable. <laughs> um but we had so I was in there for about an hour by myself and and things got pretty it it was it it the feeling there was not welcoming um and my recorder was moving back and forth I had a re, uh, recorder running and it my whole side of my tent was pushed in well you know if you're in, if you know anything how bigfoot typically work they usually distract one way and then try something else on the, behind you or something so I can only imagine when I'm looking at one side of the tent what's going on on the other side of the tent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were definitely all over, and uh, they were there was they, uh, they were up in the trees doing wood knocks, which was very interesting. Being up, knowing that you know they're up in these trees above us and knocking, that was uh, heard by um, Tammy, one of the ladies that was camped. My hearing's not the best, but the ladies that were there could hear everything. They said they were walking all around our tents, and they were, they were just, they were, they were being actually pretty aggressive. They thought um, up until the big alpha male came back, and then, or when he came up there, um, they kind of just had a distance from us, and then threw rocks at us while the while we were snoring. <laughs> Disturbing the peace with your snoring. Yeah. But, uh, so, the, so, you know, uh, to get back to some of these pictures, I, I have pictures of me in Iowa in that cave system, and you can see it behind. You, you can see the stream as it's coming out of the water, and then there's some pictures of, of Barry and LV and I and Barry and... Um, uh, and so Elvin, the, the, Elvin's a gigantic one that's like almost Sasquatch size? Yeah, Elvin's down on the, on the ground there, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then... Uh, and then... Uh, and he does... He, he's uh, with Red Squatching there, and then... And that's me in the one picture, and then in the black, and then my friend Paul in the other one. And we all do res watching, too. We go on the res. But that's the cave system behind it. You can kind of see in the one picture that I'm in in the black there. 
you could see how the water um, had ran down um, kind of from the top of this cave, and you can see the cave entrance there. Yeah. But the, the stream was just right behind us where it was coming out of the ground there. So just kind of give people examples of how these car systems work and how the caves, you know, caves become these entrances to these very recluse areas. And that was a good example of it. This was a park that was built literally on top of the cave with a spring. And cool. springs, uh, if there's a spring uh, in your area that has clear running water like that, there's a good chance that, that that's look for Bigfoot activity because they'll probably be around that spring wanting that access without a doubt. Look for their structures. They also like the confluences of rivers, like um, where two rivers will come together. That's a good spot, too, that you might see some um, of, you know, signs of Bigfoot, some structures and that. And I, uh, another picture that we have, it's, it's me standing in an island area. It's literally surrounded by, uh, by water, and there is a teepee, kind of an older teepee structure, and that's in, in Nebraska, all in, in my research area. And that was in the spring. Yeah, I think we had, uh, yeah, we had a winter picture of this one in the tree structure show, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So this is in the spring, and clearly look how everything's grown up all around it. And yep. you can just see that, um, you know, these areas are very lush. They have a lot of wildlife in, in these areas. And I actually found the, the, these little islands, it's Salt Creek, but these, there's little islands that are created in these systems because the when you just allow uh, these rivers to, to go, uh, to flow on their own, they create kind of oxbows and islands and that sort of thing. And there is a ton of islands in this, this, this 1,700 acres. And you literally can only get in one way. So it's easy for them to watch who's coming into these areas. And then they could just exit out the other area and get out of the water. And I've had that happen before. I filmed, I was in there looking around, and all of a sudden I hear something huge jump off the side of, of the of the riverbank down. It's about 20 feet, and it's this huge stud. And you can see this branch just swinging like a diving board. Like oh, something God. Grabbed, something yeah. grabbed it jumped off i recorded it It was really cool but uh it just it just reminded me you know they can just disappear easily um they're, they're so so much faster than us and so you know and me you could tell in this picture i'm walking it's about waist high i'm not getting through there very fast <laughs> you know yeah. i'm not moving very quickly through these environments and there but we found a couple spots along these this river it, the river was up very high because of some flooding but there were several spots that were just worn down, and it was either deer laying there or it was some Bigfoot hanging out watching us from the other side of the creek, and then we came over that way. I thought it was very interesting because it was just along the river, and, uh, you know, they could have easily been sitting in there. Uh, so I thought that was cool. Yeah, uh, One for of the sure. things I'll uh, kind of talk about, too, when we get to the iglow, I wanted to just to make a brief uh, comment about, a recent wood booger who was uh, uh, the M.K. Davis, I think, did a, uh, a, a little commentary on that was drowning a deer. I think that was recently uh, people had seen that, the wood booger drowning a deer. I don't know if you saw that video. Yeah, I saw it. But, but there, there is a, a little bit of an eye glow to that picture that I thought was really cool. And it's you can see it. When you slow that down, you can see the eyes shining and, and casting illuminating light out of their eyes. So I thought that was pretty cool. But 
that doesn't surprise me. They would grab one in a river like that and just pull them down. The least, uh, it would take the least amount of energy just to stand on them while you're looking around to see if anybody else is coming and just to stand on their neck while they struggle and die and drown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was classic Sasquatch behavior. Some people are like, oh, well, they're not psychotic or they would, you know, why would they act so psychotic? You know, come on, people. They're they're going to do the least amount of energy it's going to take. And standing on the deer's neck and, and looking around for anybody else coming is the least amount of energy it's going to take to kill this deer. It's They're yeah. not going to have to mess with the horns or anything like that, you know. Um, and, again, I had a guest on early in my show, um, Donnie, who – saw a uh, dog man uh, killing a deer that way. And it was actually standing on its neck in the river, drowning it, and turned and saw them come walking up. And uh, wasn't really very uh, into the idea of giving up its kill and leaving. So uh, you can imagine that that was a hair-raising one. But, yeah, I mean, it was standing in the river on the deer, drowning it. I think that's exactly what that wood booger uh, video, I mean, you can't really see it that well. You can just see something, you know, you know, fl- uh, kind of splashing around in the water that looks to be a deer. But uh, I think that's exactly what it was doing. It was just standing on its neck. And uh, and that way it can look around while, you know, see if anybody's coming. They are always vigilant. And yeah. that would take the loose amount of energy. So that was something I thought was interesting, but, uh, yeah, now we can kind of get into, uh, the, we looked at some of the habitat here, like the, the caves and, and that, but now, um, I got some interior of a cave. If you, if you got to that picture, you at the one, there's some lights and this is yep. the actual, this is a sandstone cave. And if you look at this, there are pickaxes. Uh, you can see the pickaxe marks on the, on the top of it where a single guy had, had, had opened this cave up after it was created just through water. But this is a prime example of sandstone cave. And this one's in Lincoln uh, Roberts Cave. right? It's right near my research area, Wilderness Park. That's why I totally believe the Bigfoot are using other cave systems in this park. I think this totally corroborates it because these are cavernous. If you see people standing there in that one picture, and then you can also see how they they they're sandy on the bottom of them uh, of the cave, and you can see where some water had been in the past. Um, but this this was man-made, so it's certainly more um, open that way. But and more regular. Man- You've got the regular wall height and size and all that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, and they just expanded on what was already there essentially. But uh, a bigfoot could easily make big burrows like this without question. This is about 30 to 60 feet underground, so there are um, the ent- they they do, they do go quite a ways underground, but it's, it would not be a challenge for a Bigfoot to create an access to an area that would be deeper underground and that would be completely, um, have several entrances to those locations. So yeah. just so you get an, an idea of what one of these, if nobody's ever been in a sandstone cave, uh, this is what they look like. They have very sandy... Um, uh, ground. It's not like it's rocky or anything like that. It's just very sandy. You can walk around in there barefoot, no problem at all. The temperature would stay about 50, 55 degrees year-round. Yep. Um, and you can see there's graffiti and some carvings and stuff in this over the years. Very easy, like I talked about before. You could carve out little niches to, to put crayfish or uh, acorns or whatever it is you want to save, and they'll 
it's almost like drying drying your maybe maybe they put beef meat in there deer meat or something and it dries it out and keeps it yep. over the winter for them. I mean, we just don't know. But uh, it's certainly possible for them to keep a variety of things uh, so that they could stay underground for a period of time. Um, so I thought those those were real good pictures. Those are great examples. You can tour that. And it's called Robber's Cave. There's a lot of history. Native Americans were using that. There's uh, the history of it. that it, it's Most of it's closed off now, but there's miles, supposedly miles of these caves in this area. Yeah. And nobody knows about them. Absolutely nobody right. knows about them anymore. So and that's what the thing. Think about how many cave systems there are like that, whether natural or created by somebody else, that have been forgotten about and abandoned. And, of course, yeah. you know who it's found out about them and is still using them. Exactly. And if you, the, that's why that car system map is so important, because you can look there and say, you know, with that car system map, the environment is right for that. Even though you don't think there's anything there, it's, it could be. They could. They could easily make these burrows in those areas without a doubt. Just because you don't know that there's a cave there doesn't mean they're not making them. So yeah, just want exactly. to take them from it. So, um, cause there, I know a lot of people are like, well, there's no caves around here. Never heard of a cave around here. Well, look on that map. And just because it's not even on the map, if there's Dakota sandstone or something in that area, uh, that's that's the type of environment we're talking about. If you have springs, you know, we got a spring on our property, but we don't have any caves. Well, there's a good chance there's a cave there somewhere also. <laughs> yeah. You just uh, haven't found the entrance. It's underground. That's why you haven't seen it. Exactly. So I just want to kind of open people's eyes to this because this is underground. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And 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 that's the kind of problem that we face with this is that, you know, people say, well, I've never seen them or I've never, you know, I don't think there's enough here for them to live. Uh, in this area, well, they have if they have the, an underground spring and their spring uh, is running, and you know if you're in a farm area, there's plenty of calories for these uh, large omnivores. There's absolutely yep. plenty of calories. So uh, they're there, they're living there, they're making their own burrows. If there's not cave systems, and they are moving around at night or in times then that you're not aware that they're there. So uh, just just kind of wanting to open people's mind up to that. And then uh, I think we kind of talked about the car system. Is that's good enough? Yeah, yeah. We need to move on to the how are they navigating around in these car systems part of this. We're actually kind of running a long time, so yeah. yeah. So you got the rock art of Bigfoot here next, and I always kind of like that picture. And it's like, well, that's big and scary and Bigfooty looking. And what's with the things? Does he got like blood dripping down from his eyes, or are they trying to indicate that like he's got shine coming off his eyes, or what are they doing to that drawing? What do you think? Well, that's kind of what I. Uh, that's kind of what drew my attention to it. You know, uh, you really don't understand what they were trying. Their interpretations generally are from things they actually see. So. Mm -hmm. How do you draw a picture of eye glow or somebody uh, some luminescent eyesight? You know, how do right. you portray that? And I think if you put that into context of these eyeballs, then that makes sense. These are almost like beams of light. Yeah, that's kind you of know? what it looked like to me. And then there's like little, it radiates uh, like a little bit lighter and less as it goes, just like a flashlight yeah. beam or something. 
And it looked yeah. to me like that's what they're, you know, I always kind of wondered about that. Like, are they trying to show eye glow or something here? What is with the eyes on this thing? It's pretty obvious what it is other than that, but it's like, well, what's with the eyes, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, this was an, uh, an excellent attempt at trying to, um, you know, when you do, uh, Native Americans are very, uh, as far as the visual aspect of this, try to really capture what was happening as accurately as they could. Well, that would be very difficult to explain how somebody's eyes glow and how you would paint such a thing. But I think that that was a really good interpretation of it, and I think that's what they were trying to represent in that picture. Um, and so, also, interestingly it, and tellingly, it's red. Yes, which is another color that we do that we see very common uh, of their eye glow. Not necessarily a good sign to have the red eye. <laughs> but it is something that's regularly reported. So, again, that fits right in with uh, you know, Bigfoot and eye glow and red eye glow. And maybe that's what they were trying to depict there. So just a little interesting note on that. So in the next picture, uh looks like somebody else is doing a drawing of eye glow here. Yeah, that one was from, actually, I included that because I thought it was cool. Plus, I like, it was from a Radiohead album of, of uh called King of Limbs from like 2012 but they had this like all these pictures of like forests and stuff and I just thought this looked like some kind of idol almost like <laughs> illuminating light so I included it just because I thought it was a cool picture with trees behind it with some illumin illuminated eyes but also it was a really cool album so I liked Radiohead yeah. but I that was really okay, cool. Okay so plug for Radiohead they don't suck I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was that was kind of cool, and they uh, they got some pretty cool songs that are kind of squatchy. So check that out. But I just thought cool art. You know, a lot of times we have art imitating, um, you know, what the what's going on in the real world, and and sometimes this is what's what is somebody's taking uh, trying to do some abstract art or something from really things that they've experienced, and this is the best way they can explain it. So yeah. we have cavemen doing it, and we have modern artists doing it. Why not? There you, uh, go. you know, ancient so, Native Americans and modern artists. So just thought I'd give a couple, uh, you know, pictures like that to just kind of show artwork of it. And then the next one um, is kind of an interesting one that I had gotten off of um, some uh, an article that they were talking about um, um, the um, uh, having genetic research done and finding that there was sub-Saharan Africans having ghost genes, and this picture was with all that. I thought, right. you know, wow, that's crazy because this almost looks like some kind of eye glow gener you know, generator. Yeah, the way they got the art uh, set up, it looks like the people in the eyes glowing red. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and what's so what's going on with that? That's really cool. And I again, this is just an artist uh, representation of some ancient man, but or ancient uh, hominid, but uh, really cool um, artwork that's selling uh, some sort of electric. Uh, uh, some sort of uh, eye glow or something like that. And also, I thought it was cool during that storm that we, when I was up there with all this lightning around, they were really active. So uh, there's something with this electricity thing going on. Very cool. <clears throat> and then the, so yeah, the next two pictures, are the ones that I'm excited to get to because these are real pictures of real eye glow. These are actual pictures of eye glow. Um, these were taken on the Omaha Res by. Um, uh, Barry and uh, Derek um, Webster of Red Squatching. 
And um, I blew the one picture up and put uh, my website on that uh, just so uh, when I first put it out there, because I, I had uh, changed also the color in the other picture. But the first picture you look at, it ha what, what's happening there is very interesting. And it's, it's really going to depend on the quality of your screen that you have if you're watching this on YouTube. But if you're just listening to us, we'll try to walk you through this. There is one eye that is definitely illuminated. And underneath it, to the right of it, you can almost see that it's oily skin. It's almost like this. There's a reflection on the skin. Also, um, it's just it's it's interesting. And then the other eye that is would be on the left side um, is partially closed. And what I actually I showed this picture to Dr. Meldrum uh, when he was on the Omaha Res back in January, and he made an interesting comment because at the time. Typically, we do not shine lights on them. We just, but in this picture, they did shine a big floodlight. It was uh, while the eye was glowing, they shined a flood floodlight on it. And what we believe it was doing is when you when you have a bright light looking at you, adjust your eye. Sometimes, if you hold one eye closed, you can adjust your vision to the light source. So I thought that was a really interesting comment, uh, but. This is a the, the eyes were glowing. This isn't a reflection of that light. This is actual eye glow, um, and there's a big difference between that. If you put a light on a on a raccoon or something like that, you will have them reflect light or a deer. Uh, but these these eyes glow in complete darkness. There's nothing around them, and I have seen uh, leaves of trees, like a Bigfoot standing under the tree, and all of a sudden these uh, they're looking around. You can see them look one way or the other, and the, the leaves of the trees around it are illuminated as it's turning its head and looking. So it is casting this light out, and that's telling because if they live underground, if they're in an area where they're in these car systems and living underground, how are they going to see under there? We yeah, can't see underground. There's no light. You've got to there's have light in order to no see light. There's absolutely no light. And if they're entering these in caves that's just water excess, there's not even any ambient light of anything, nothing. So very interesting. Um, I found something on the Omaha Res that was cool, too, when I was just there in August. There was this fungi that was glowing in the dark. It was some kind of fungi that was on the ground. I couldn't believe it. It just glowed. And I bet they'd t they'll grab some of this fungi and take that down there in the caves with them, too, just... You know, yeah, sure, they're like little flashlights. Well, they just—they're just, just kind of cool. You just kind of hang them up or whatever. I don't know, but it just caught my attention. I thought, you know, there's there are other things in nature that are bioluminescent that yeah. that, that that have light sources that way. And what I've recently just uh, found out—the first picture is just the actual color, so it's kind of a, a white amber color, and you can see the eye. Uh, that, that clearly it is there is a light source coming out of that eye, and then the second picture is blue. I altered it in the blue temperature color to show temperature variation, and that's how you could change colors. Is if, is the temperature variation changes the color of something uh, from one color to another in the light spectrum, and I thought that was interesting, so I just changed it. But blue is a common one that we see with young uh, Bigfoot. Uh, a lot of the very young ones that have been seen, you'll see their eyes are blue, they'll glow in blue. Um, we've seen, uh, I believe they have 
two or more offspring. So we many times what uh, sightings have been seeing several little blue eyes looking at you from a um, you know from behind tree or behind in a ditch area or somewhere where they're being kept. Um, so that's very common. And then the red eye glow, we typically have seen that too. That's generally, we understand that might not be the best uh, inviting um, situation to be in. Typically, they could be not happy. I believe they are communicating at some extent too with this eye glow, but uh, they have the ability to completely use this to see in caves and get around in areas, get in mountains, wherever they need to be at night with with no light at all, and they can they can traverse through the forests or mountains with no problem. No problem. I got a question about your two your two pictures of the eye glow here. Is he looking at the camera or is he profiled to it? He's looking directly at it. So okay, if, if you can see the left eye is almost closed, there's just barely any light. If you can see that, right. Um, it looks uh, like there's a little blip of light off to the side of where the right eye is. And I think that's actually some uh, reflection either from when they put the – because their skins are oily. If you've ever had one touch a window or touch something, they leave. there's like an oil that they leave. They have like oily skin. Well, if you look at the side of his face next to that eye, that might just be some reflection of oil either from his own uh, eye glow or from the light that they had shined on him at that okay. time. So I think you're seeing a little bit of his cheek area or partially just outside the eyeball area. But you also see uh, their eyes are they're big. Their eyes are yeah. very big. They're huge. They're much bigger. If you ever stood next to a ice, our family used to have draft horses, and a draft horse is, you know, over 1,500 pounds or so, and their eyes are just huge, and they stand about eight feet uh, tall, and their head stood straight up seven to eight feet tall. And they got huge eyes. So imagine something with just big, very big, huge eyes that is yeah. 10 feet tall. Uh, yeah, that's gonna... one thing that always gets me is a lot of the people that do illustrations of Bigfoot, they always try and make them with these beady little eyes. And it's like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what you're drawing, dude, but that ain't it. You know, the, one, the first one that I saw was a Type 4. It was during the day, and it was nice and bright, but you could still tell the pits of his eyes. His eyeballs had to be like the size of a soda can. They were huge. Exactly. They, their eyes are huge, and they're uh, so that's that's another tell tell sign of them that they they have these huge eyes. They can uh, and they and I totally um, I've seen this eye glow many times. I mean, uh, in uh, probably a hundred or more times I have seen it now in the bush. I've been out that much with that many Bigfoot uh, that I've seen eye glow and. It, I am totally convinced this is something they do, and I totally believe that it makes sense for them to have that uh, in a car system. If they're an ancient being, which I believe they are, you know, they found footprints next to dinosaur. Uh, they found hominid footprints next to dinosaurs yeah. in places, California and stuff. So if that's if that's a relative of Bigfoot, then they're very old, and they may have these ancient vestiges of eye glow and things that, that are truly a part of the natural world we live in. This isn't anything uh, supernatural, people. This is not a supernatural power. This is no, as long as, you know, as far as that goes, you can look at lots of examples of deep sea life where the critters have, for one reason or another, a, a developed this ability to make themselves glow or flash colors and patterns. I mean, you know, cuttlefish are even weirder. They can change their uh, texture of their skin. 
and uh, and form different colors and patterns on it, like you know, simultaneously. It's really weird. But even yeah. here on the surface, you know, in the normal, plain old, average, boring world that we live in, there's these things that down south they call lightning bugs, and up here we call fireflies, and they can light up. So oh, they don't have any supernatural power to light up. They're fireflies. And that's a that's a chemical reaction of luciferin and luciferous chemicals interacting, and that's actually a cold light source. They call that a cold light source. It does not give off infrared uh, or any uh, ultraviolet um, heat sensing. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be able to see them in those with with those type of heat sensing thermal detectors. They're giving off something that isn't. Uh, you're not able to see, which is very yeah, interesting. No, no heat it's signature, cold, yeah. It's a, it's a cold light. And so a lot of times you'll get people, oh, I see this, and I, I can't get any view of anything on my thermal or anything. Well, you know, the, uh, they're, they're using probably a cold light uh, uh, chemical reaction, too, uh, that is not necessarily giving off heat. It's giving well, you would off, think it would have to be. I mean, if your eyeballs heated up every time you wanted to make them glow so you could see underground, that wouldn't work very well. You'd have all kinds of problems associated with that. Yeah, yeah. So just so people understand it, this is all scientific. This isn't anything that, you know, we're not just, um, you know, digging for things here and trying to make this all work. It works because it does work, because they live underground, because they do. Many people have seen this eye glow. Taking these pictures that I have here are evidence of their eye glow. Um, there's a 20-minute video to this. These pictures. These are just single pictures. There's 20-minute video that is on YouTube that you can see of this video that I have linked on my website. 20 minutes of these eyes glowing. So uh, right that it's not just a still picture. And a lot of people still pictures don't get a lot of attention because it's hard. But the video is pretty compelling. You know, yeah, I, I would say and encouraging everybody to go check this out. Is it on YouTube then? Where do they go to find it? Is it on Knox uh, Well, if you go to my website and <laughs> go, um, I've got uh, Bigfoot bioelectric uh, static theory um, on my website, look on that page and there will be a link to this to this uh, video of the these two pictures of iGlow that I have on there. And, and Very so you cool. Can, to, uh, it's probably just easier to go to my website and then go to it from there. So, um, right and then you know we've got some other pictures here. We got a uh, Sibylla Irwin. Uh, 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 courtesy of her, had some pictures that we have posted here of of, of pictures that she had drawn of uh, Bigfoot with eye glow. And so that's um, you know again, she does renderings for people who had firsthand sightings and just draws from what they had. Yep. And this is commonly reported. You'll see a lot of artists doing, um, you know, art of Bigfoot where they've got glowing eyes. And this is, you know, where it comes from. It's not like, well, let's make the eyes look glowy so it's scarier. And that's not it. No, it's because the people are reporting that that's what they're seeing. So the artists are trying to do artistic representations of what they're being reported as people having seen. The other thing that's interesting to bring up here, and I had a conversation with uh, one of my friends who's been guest on the show a couple times and probably will be back again in the future here, um, about his experiences. And uh, he, um, he uh, has what he says lines up with what I've heard from a, a couple other people that have been in the situation where they've actually had a flashlight on one of them. They've had more than flashlight, more than one flashlight on them. And 
there were more than one person there observing, obviously, and they were seeing different colored reflections depending on which angle they were uh, to which flashlight beam that was on it. Oh, wow. And one of them actually, well, they had, two of them had flashlight beams on it. In one situation, there was a third person, because one said, it's green, no, it's blue. It's green, no, it's blue. And the person walked from one side of the back of the one person, passed them over to the other person, and passed them, and went, yeah, it's, all, it's, it's both, and it's white, too. It depends on where you're standing. Yeah, and I do believe they have control over that, the, uh, the colors that they, and they probably can see, you know, if you're seeing the primary colors, you can probably have variations of all the color spectrum. Uh, so uh, without a doubt, I think they have control over what color they're utilizing and what they're emitting. And um, if they're, whether that's used for communication purposes or just better seen in certain environments, I'm not sure. Uh, well, one thing that I've noticed is that if you have different colored lights, like if you have these lights that have basically like a blue light on it, you'll get a different color reflection than you will off of pure white light or you will off of a yellow light. And then it also seems to depend on what angle they're at. Like if they're, if it's just a background light and you're getting like a green glow from the, it seems to be looking at you and you're getting a green glow on it, it's not looking at you, it's looking at the light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this this is just fascinating, and that's this is a big reason why when I do research at night, we typically don't have any lights on or anything because we can when we do like a, a whoop, a really low whoop or something, or a wood knock to 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 let them know. Uh, very typically, we'll talk in in uh, Omaha language and introduce everybody. We try to do it very respectfully, like you know we're here. This is our names. We each introduce ourselves, but we can look out then in the in these woods and start seeing these eyes uh, glow, start to peek around trees, and you can <laughs> see them moving, start moving towards us with these uh, these these illuminated eyes, and it is just crazy. I mean, every time I see it, it's it's such an awesome experience because. You know, just, I bet it never stops being creepy either. Every time it's like, oh God, here we go again. <laughs> it is. I mean, because you know, they're, they're kind of, they're, this is what you know you came for, and some people, yep. you know, they're not prepared. For, <laughs> they're not prepared for that. They didn't realize <laughs> they're going to come right up to us like that. And then you talk about, well, we're going to pitch a tent out here now and spend the night here, and <laughs> they're right out here, you know, and, and so yeah, that. It's it's a bit overwhelming for people uh, if if you haven't if if you don't know what you're getting into in that and I certainly you know I encourage people to do this but to be safe and go out with people who know what they're doing uh, but certainly don't um, do this on your own um, you should have a buddy system and also be in those areas during the day so you know what you're getting into in the dark don't just yeah. go out because there's these ridges and cliffs and stuff. You know, people could easily fall off and get hurt. We don't want yep. to encourage that. They're in environments sure. that are tough enough to get into already. So use use some common sense when you're doing this. Safety just, first. Oh, Count the area by day before you go wandering around in it at night. Exactly, exactly. And uh, But if you're seeing these structures and that sort of thing during the day and you want to come back out there at night, take note of that and then know where um, you need to be on your trail or whatever, where safe place where you would be would be at and then you could try to engage them that way with at least having somebody else with you 
Um, you know, those are things you can try to do. But if you're out there in complete darkness and looking, you'll see these eyes, uh, these glowing eyes peeking out from around trees or coming towards you if they're in that area. And there's usually always a sentinel. You know, anytime I've gone into any area, any park or anything like that, they're generally somebody right near the beginning of the trailhead. You don't have That's to watching. hike back a mile in there. They're already no. watching you. So yeah. uh, it isn't like you've got to be, you know, Mr. Adventure that i got to get out into the deepest, darkest part of the woods. That's not necessarily the case. Nope. No, in fact, you want to stay away from the deepest, darkest part of the woods because that's where the type threes and fours live. Don't go there. Exactly. Go yeah. go to the areas near civilization where those nice opportunistic type ones and twos are hanging around that aren't so dangerous. But in any case, if you're going to do this and you haven't had a lot of experience already and you find where there's some stick structures and you decide, scout it during the day and I'm going to go up there at, at night and check the whole thing out, um, Safety first, man. Make sure that you've got an escape route. Make sure that you've got a plan. Yeah. And, so and, and, you, know, you don't just, uh, you know, get yourself into a situation where you're camped up there and all of a sudden they're not digging it and they're getting aggressive and hostile and you're there without a flashlight in the dark not knowing which way to go. You better have an escape route plan just in case that you have to pack up and, and get out of there or worst case scenario, just get up and get out of there and come back and get stuff the, the next day or whatever. Um, you know, yeah. always be aware of that. Don't get yourself into a position where you're basically trapped and you have no options. Exactly, because they're just like anything, any other, you know, animal, and I'm not saying they're animals, but just, uh, you know, they sense that you're vulnerable and aren't going to stand up for yourself. That triggers things with some with, with some animals, and you don't want to make yourself yep. a victim. Same thing as running. Don't run. Never, <laughs> ever, ever run because it might tre- uh, trigger their um, predator instinct to chase you. Yes. And, you know, yes. So do not freaking run. No matter how scared you are, be respectful, back off slowly, don't look dangerous. And you're not going to outrun them, so don't even try. No. <laughs> All you're going to do is get them to, to think that it's fun and they're going to chase you and might forget for a minute or two that they're not actually trying to hurt you. <clears throat> but you put a light on them. You know, like I said, you know, I was talking about not having flash, a flashlight on uh, while you're looking. But keep a flashlight with you. Without a doubt, a very good flashlight because if, if you get stuff thrown at you and you're in a situation that you do feel dangerous, uh, we, we had that. We had tree knocks around us that became very disturbing. And what we ended up doing is getting up and putting a light source all around us. Yep. And that was very clear that we're, you know, we ain't putting up with this. And we all got some other uh, researchers down in Texas that have tried blue lasers, and they swear by them. I have heard that too. I've heard some things about the the lasers uh, using the blue um, lasers. Definitely, yep. I've heard. They, I yeah, they, they really seem to hate that color. If you want to make them go away, blue lasers seem to work good. Yeah, so that, you know, as a last resort, something like that is probably a, something definitely to have. Um, so, yeah, use caution. You know, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just open your mind to these, this, this type of concept of eye glow and certainly encourage people to experience it themselves, but do it with people who have experience and do it with a sense of that you need to be out in the bush with some protection and at least know that you are responsible for your own safety, you know. Yep. Don't think that they're going to just treat you like you're, you know, like you're one of, you know, no threat because 
they may be unhappy you're there in their environment. Yeah. And, and even if you're non-threatening, they can still be unhappy that you're where you're at. It doesn't matter if you present an actual threat. They can just be unhappy that you're there. That's all it takes sometimes. So be aware of that. You know, and the ones, and again, here's a good reason to not be going out into the middle of nowhere to do this. Not only are you more likely to run into type 3s and 4s out there, but you're also more likely to run into uh, Bigfoot troops that have very little contact with humans and have a very short temper because of it. They're not used to having to put up with you. They don't want to put up with you, and they're not going to put up with you. So, you know, in those situations, a type 1 or a type 2 could be just as dangerous as the other ones, especially if they've got young around, and they're just not willing to put up with you being there at all. So be very careful with what you're doing in this situation. I really don't encourage, um, you know, beginners to go out and do this this sort of thing generally. So if you do decide you want to go do this, try and find somebody around your area that already does research, is reputable, knows what they're talking about, and go out with them. Um, but be very careful. Yeah, and uh, the last picture that I had here of eye glow was of a red eye glow, which is pertinent to what we're just talking about. Uh, typically, that is associated uh, with uh, probably not being happy with what you're doing or being in that area, and you might consider yep. that a warning sign. Um, that particular picture we have here, I don't know who the artist was of that, but um, I thought that was a really interesting picture. The other thing right. that I thought was interesting about it is the face is almost illuminated, which is which is kind of rare because normally <laughs> you just see the picture, uh, you see the, the eyes. You don't see any part of the face. But um, if they wanted to project, I suppose, a different uh, wavelength of the eyes glow to illuminate their face, I suppose they could. Um, and because uh, uh, I have seen them when they stepped up, when I saw one in uh, Iowa, it stepped up on a two-track and its eyes just got huge. I mean, it yeah. just was surprised. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting picture. I included that. Uh, but that's some red and the, eye glow. The natives and their legends will tell you, you know, avoid the ones with red eye glow. And in some cases, I think they're just saying that if you're, you know, if you're encountering one that's really unhappy with you, the eyes tend to glow red. But in other cases, they're being specific, and they're saying, hey, there's two kinds in this area. There's the ones you don't have to worry about, and then there's that other kind that have the red eye glow. <clears throat> so since we don't know 100% the unequivocal answer on this one, if you see red eye glow, uh, play it safe, get, get out of there if you can. That's always the best option. Yeah, yeah, and I've, I've found that to be pretty true, really. Uh, I've had red eye glow around us, and generally that's not either, there's a feeling that comes with that that's not exactly welcoming. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, hopefully it's only a type 1 that's mad at you and you're not like seeing a hungry type 4 or something, <laughs> in which case, good luck. Yeah, uh, and then uh, the last few pictures here I, I just kind of included. The one is a picture uh, from Iowa from those Solarian escarpments, and we were at a on an expedition with uh, BFRO, and there was this actual Class A sighting. It was during just this park had just opened up from winter, so it was just the first day of spring, and we had a cookout, and Barry and LV were with me, and they had done whoops and stuff, and people started seeing some like dark figures coming down into this ravine area, which was a it was a kind of a large valley with a stream, clear uh, trout stream, and about a uh, uh, there was a class A sighting. Somebody, had actually, uh, one of the researchers, had seen one actually walk into the trail and leave, and he 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 said he just saw it. He couldn't believe it. 
Well, not too far from there, uh, Barry had seen something get into, it was about 100 to 75 yards from us. Something was moving around, and so he pointed it out to me. So I took about 30 pictures of it. None of them came in very good, but there is one picture, that this one I included, that you can see what I believe is a credible picture. And I sent this to MK Davis, and he um, looked it over, and, you know, he said it could be a Sasquatch but be, or a Bigfoot, but, you know, the the single pictures are, are you know, it's obviously not a Patterson type picture, Patterson Gimlin type picture, but uh, he he definitely wasn't going to discount it, but he didn't say that it, you know, it was a big, he said it certainly could be one, but right. because of the creating story that I had with it, uh, the class A sighting and the fact that we had all seen act, uh, activity in that area, I think this has some interesting um, dynamics to it. Uh, the picture itself in the center of it, and it's on my website, you can blow it up and look at uh, look at it closer, the original picture. It looks much better. Um, but in the center of it, there is a green leaf and there's a triangle and there's a face that you can see in that that has uh, some very dark eyes and a, and a, and a it's like it's almost um, got its head tilted back. And the reason I really like this picture, I sat on it for a year. I didn't, it was, I believed it was just all pareidolia, which is very common. Uh, people see things in, in pictures of faces. Well, I'm, you know, here I am on my high horse here saying this is not. But the reason I don't believe it's pareidolia is because uh, there to the far right of it, you can see, if you blow this picture up, you can see its hand is wrapped around part of a, a, a sapling. And then its legs, it's almost like uh, it's it's holding itself back. Like it's really caught out in the open and trying to hide, which I think is mm -hmm. telling itself that it does not want to be seen and it's trying to break up its and i took this picture through about 75 yards of brush and you know timber yeah. so it's, this isn't a, out in the open by any means but no. it's got one leg kind of uh, the right leg is kind of curled under indian style underneath and it's outstretched uh, uh left leg it's and it's, its right leg is curled underneath there it's got another appears to be its hand is holding it uh uh around a branch and it's it's literally kind of three quarters of the way bent backwards like it's trying to lay back almost and just mm. trying to break profile so that's the reason why i mean if you look at the face on it it looks pretty credible to me um i just put it out there for people to make their own opinion and you know it isn't going to you know break any news um you know that this is this is the best <laughs> giblin but this was an area that uh, this was a um, this was a car system uh, that had activity a lot of and they they came in came real close. There was a class A sighting right by there. So you know after sitting on it about a year and I blew it up. I put it on my 4K TV. I bought one of them, which you can't get any 4K channels. But anyway, uh, I put wow. it on there. And when I saw it on that, I was like, oh wow, that's. You know, I think I do have something here. So anyway, yeah. I encourage people to look at it. I included it just because it's in this karst-type system. It was taken on an expedition, and, and I have a story about it. And I think I posted it on your uh, on the Montana Bigfoot Project, too. So, um, yeah. was, well, well, people, people can make their own minds up, and that's yeah. what the show is about. We'll just present you guys with the evidence. You can take a look at it, listen to what we have to say, make up your own mind. 
Nothing's yeah, carved in stone. Did. Nothing's 100%. Nothing's been resolved yet. You know, nobody's got one in their garage except for Wes, and he won't let me look at it, so that's not helping. And, yeah. uh, you know, so until we <laughs> until we actually have hands-on, uh, you know, one of these things to to take a close uh, look at, uh, you know, this is about the best we can do for you. So it, it, uh, is there anything shows, else? That just shows how tough it is to get a picture of, of them, you know. The, the oh, reality. God, yeah. Uh, this is damn near impossible. They are so good at hiding. Uh, to get any glimpse of them like that is amazing. And then, of course, the last picture we had was the Patterson-Gimlin uh, picture, and I thought, you know, you just met Bob Gimlin, so maybe you wanted to mention that. Yeah, that was such a hoot. You know, I've been a fan of this guy since uh, since the film came out and I had any awareness that there was such a thing. It was uh, five years later that I actually saw one. And then after that, I became keenly interested in it. And since all that time, I've been thinking, you know, it'd be fun to actually meet Bob Gimlin someday. But back in the old days, there weren't any conventions or anything, so there was no way to meet him. And uh, just pretty much figured it would never happen. Well, now, recently in the last decade or so, there's been a lot of conventions popping up. And Bob has been actually, like, popular in going to him. And God bless him and more power to him. That poor guy had to go through 30 years of hell after him and uh, Roger got that film. And he never made a damn penny on it. All he did was just take a pile of crap for it. And so finally he's getting some, you know, some nice approval. And people are uh, saying some kind things to him and uh, and giving him some uh, attention and some of the uh, – some of the treatment basically deserved for for being the guy that Allah made this happen because Roger didn't have the wherewithal to do it. If it hadn't been for uh, Bob going along and supplying the horses, we never would have got that film. And then the hell they went through getting back out again. So after, you know, decades of thinking about this, I had this image built up in my head that I would go to some conference sometime and there would be a long line there and I would stand in that line and wait for an hour to get to the front and buy an autograph picture and say, thanks for getting the video, Patty. We all appreciate it and you're my hero and all that kind of good stuff. So here I am standing out in front of the conference with Mark Mercer having a cigarette with him and across the parking lot comes walking two people. And the one of my recognized first, Russell Acard from the International Bigfoot Conference, and uh, the second one's a little bit shorter, gentlemen. When he gets closer, I can see it's Bob Gimlin. They're walking right toward us. Well, they recognize Mark, and I've got an IBF shirt on, so, of course, they're figuring, no, it's got to be somebody else who was just at the IBF. And Russell gets closer. He recognized me, of course, because we know each other. And he walks up and shakes hands with Mark first, and Bob's standing there not, you know, knowing who to shake hands with, and there's only one option left, puts his hand out toward me and says, hey, buddy, how you doing? And shakes my hand. And let me tell you, this was by far the least probable meeting of Bob Gimlin that I could have ever imagined, and I would have bet every penny I had against that ever happened. Happening. So, uh, <laughs> quite the spectacular moment for me. No, I didn't have to introduce myself to Bob Gimlin. He came walking up and shook my hand. <laughs> and of course, he has no idea who I am or that I do a show or anything like that. It wasn't that he recognized me or anything. He's just that kind of a kind honest, good-hearted gentleman. And the way he's been portrayed on the shows and the way he comes across radio shows that you've heard him on and stuff, that's the real Bob Gimlin. He's a, he is a living legend, and rightfully so. The guy is amazing. He's a prime example of a really great human being, totally kind, outgoing, and wonderful person. And, you know, that's about he's all a, I can say about it. He's the best it. of uh, what America should be proud of, a good cowboy, he's a kind-hearted <clears throat> person. Uh, yep. know, that is somebody that has stood the test of time and criticism all these yep. years. Criticism he had taken. And you he know, can still have a, a smile on his face and give a good handshake. That yep. is a good man. 
Yeah, he is. And a lot of people don't realize that this guy, he has not made much money on this. I mean, he is not well-to-do. He isn't sitting in some giant mansion or something. He's just, you know, making it like the rest of us are. And at some point, he had one of these jerk TV producers come up and offer him a million dollars to go on camera and say that that footage was fake. For a million dollars, he wouldn't do it. What does that tell you? That's some integrity that you cannot uh, imagine. He ain't for sale. Bob Gimlin is not for sale. That's right. That's awesome. Well, that sounds, well you have a great story. That was the first I heard it, so I just had I thought I'd put the picture in to kind of spark something there for you. So. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And it is the 50th anniversary, folks. It's like uh, less than a month away from uh, when they actually filmed it at this point, so. Uh, you know, get ready for a big hoopla in the Bigfoot world here surrounding the PG film for the, the next few weeks at least. Yeah, yeah, and people, get out there and look for yourself. You know, we're giving you all the tools to go do this, and so if, if you're half interested in that, you know, there's still an opportunity for the next great picture to come out. So uh, Absolutely. And, do and, it. and who got the last one? Was it research scientists? No, it was a couple of broken down cowboys with no money that just decided to go out and try and do it, and they did it. Yep, that's right. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, and i got to go back to what uh, Bindernagel said. I was just watching a show he did last night where he was talking about citizen investigators and the lack of scientists actually doing the proper work in this field. And that, you know, the citizen researchers or investigators don't always understand scientific method and don't always use the best approach to gathering their data and uh, documenting it properly. But on the other hand, he went like four or five times and said, you know, if it wasn't for those people, we wouldn't have any information on these things because they're the ones that are doing the whole job right now. Scientists, get off your lazy butts and start doing your job. Exactly. And, you know, and this is this is why we put this stuff out there. You know, there's no... I'm not making any money off with the stuff I'm doing here. I, I freely give this information away. It's research that I've done that I've, I spent my own dime on going on these expeditions. And I want other people to go and build on that. You know, that's the joy of this whole thing for me is it's exciting. I enjoy the excitement of it. But the research end of it, too, is just is trying to put this puzzle together and just look yeah. on, you know, the last 50 years between work that John Green has done from his books you know, we're 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 able to now take a lot of this stuff, and even that picture you have posted for this for the show today, it was 100 years old. So, I mean, this, yeah. we have just had to reach back and and look at all of the historical references and tie it together with what we're doing today. Uh, it's it's exciting time to be doing this. Right on, it sure is. You know, and it's fun. It's fun nowadays because there's people involved that were actually starting to make forward progress on this whole question, and can actually start like you said, connecting the dots between some of these different issues and getting it sort of figured out. So, you know, it's a really exciting time to be involved in it. There's more um, awareness of it uh, than there ever has been. It's a lot easier to get the information. You've got the Internet to help you with. All, a lot of these researchers are actually publicly visible, so they they talk to each other. You can get a hold of them and whatnot. So hopefully, uh, you know, if people will just quit fighting with each other and quitting being egomaniacs and actually start working together, and a few of them are, uh, we're going to be able to get this going a whole lot faster. And at the point where we got enough information to get the scientists involved, it's really going to go fast because they've got the funding and everything to get out there and actually do a really good job with it 
we just need to get them convinced that there's something there for them to go look at, and then they'll take care of the rest of it. So that's where we're at with it right now. But uh, thanks again for coming on the show, Rich. I always love having you on. We should have you on again at some time in the future here. Duke, always a good time. I appreciate it. It's it's always a joy to, to talk to you, and uh, looking forward to another time. Uh, I think we covered some great material today, so thanks again.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.